I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Josh Jensen, an American who would later found the Calera Wine Company in California, was on his way to India in the late 1960s when he first met Jacques Sace, a young Frenchman who had recently begun Domaine du Jacques in Burgundy. Josh is on his way to India with a Volkswagen minibus, and we found the same interest for, for wine. And... When he comes back from India, I remember very well, he goes to Paris, buy two bottles of Chateau Iquem and two or three pounds of foie gras and arrive in Saint-Romain at Becky and he wants to share that with the friends. So I'm there, Aubert is there and we share that. French vigneron meeting with a young American with an interest for wine at Becky Wasserman's house. Honestly, that could describe any number of people who did something similar over several decades. But what made this meeting more unusual was what happened next. In 1970, Josh Jensen participated in the harvest at Dujac. He comes to my place at harvest to help. I remember this minibus next to my winery. And he, at that time, he said, I want to make Pinot Noir one day. And uh, when uh, I go to California with uh, my future wife, the future, uh, I visit him and he organized a, a lunch with uh, Dick Kraft. Uh, Dick brings a, a bottle of 69 uh, from Shalom and... Uh, and uh, I have a bottle of 69.2, and so we we drink and discuss wine, discuss wine, and uh, and become friends. And at that time, uh, Josh was writing a page of the Chronicle about uh, restaurant and for the Sunday page on uh, on restaurants. He had to visit uh, two restaurants a day to be able to write his page on uh, on Sunday. So he had the need to do a lot of jogging to bring, to burn calories. But he had the decision. And I thought he was completely crazy because he spent uh, 
uh, say one year or more on the geological map to find the right place to grow Pinot Noir, his idea was limestone was major. He found the place, convinced people to sell him uh, land there. And I remember later visiting him. He has a big uh, camping car uh, where he has a baby and a, and a wife and he's planting vineyards there. And it, I, I thought it was completely, completely crazy, but, but successful. Jacques was unusual in Maurice Saint-Denis, especially during the period of the 1970s, in that he welcomed foreigners and Frenchmen from other regions of France for the Burgundy harvest. And this became a bit of a signature of a Dujac harvest, and one that continues to this day, as described by Jacques' son, Jeremy Sace. There's youth there. There's a bunch of people who are really into wine, who've traveled from Australia, New Zealand, California in some cases, and, and other places, who come with a ton of questions and a ton of passion. But in addition to working a harvest together, Jock Sace and Josh Jensen developed a friendship that spanned decades, and they bicycled across French wine regions together with a group of other vintners, as Jean-Pierre de Smet recalled. Jean-Pierre is a member of the same cycling group, and he worked a number of harvests with Jacques Sace at Dujac before founding Domaine de Larlo in Nuit St. George. You know, speaking with Jacques in the past, it really seems like it was a group of friends. Definitely, yes. Yes, a group of friends. Uh, and you did biking together. Yeah, 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 yeah. All, uh, all of us, uh, and more and more, because uh, in Burgundy there was a group, a good group of uh, skiers and uh, and bikers, and uh, so we we did celebrate uh, this year the 30th anniversary of Tour des Vignerons, which is a vintners tour by biking, and so. 30 years on the road, we are biking always uh, around the 1st of May, uh, three days uh, biking and, uh, and drinking, of course, <laughs> we are producers. So there was some Americans in there like Josh Jensen? Yeah. Josh uh, was at the beginning of this tour, the first years, and uh, in, uh, well, uh, 88, uh, something like, uh, yes. The cycling trips allowed an opportunity for the vigneron to speak to one another about winemaking technique, as Jean-Pierre alludes to in this comment about Jean-Louis Grippa, another cyclist and also someone who made wine in the Rhone Valley. He's a part of the group of the Tour des Vignerons, and so we are cycling, uh, so we are meeting at least once a year when cycling together. Uh, it's interesting. There are people uh, like Jean-Louis uh, talking uh, together about wine. It's uh, fascinating. He has such an experience of, uh, uh, of, of the vineyards. And, uh, and the winemaking is, is a great, uh, great person talking with. And uh, yes. This is the milieu that Josh Jensen, who has since passed away, once participated in in France and getting the opportunity to speak with and learn from a number of different vigneron about wine. But the conversation about winemaking also went the other way, as this memory from Jacques Sace attests to. And Josh introduced me to Paul, Paul Draper. And uh, we did uh, go together at, uh, there were some meetings uh, of analogical uh, meetings, annual meeting in Los Angeles, I think. You used to have a group together with Ken Wright, 
Dick Graff, Paul Draper, Josh Jensen, mm-hmm. and yourself, and you used to communicate about winemaking yeah. technique. Yeah. And we, we discovered that my favorite uh, wines from California were made by people using wild yeast. There was Paul Draper, Josh DeGraff was the, the, the few people using wild yeast. And so uh, that's pushed me in, in recognizing that I, was, I had started the, in the right direction. Gerard Potel of Pustor had encouraged Jacques Sace to use native yeast at Dujac and then tasting with Josh and other American vintners in the United States reinforced that idea for Jacques. Josh Jensen made a further contribution to Dujac, which was highly significant, when he recommended Christophe Moran to work at Dujac in the vineyards. And when did you meet Christophe Moran? I met Christophe Moran when he's coming back from, uh, from California. Christophe Moran worked for, for uh, Josh Jensen at Carrera, I would say one or two years. And Josh called me and said, that, that guy is great. You should hire him. And I could not afford a, a chef d'export de culture, a vineyard manager. And so I, I helped him to find a job uh, in uh, Ruy. Uh, but a few, years la- few years later, when I was making enough money to have a, a vineyard manager, I called him and he, he, he came to work with me. Eventually, you stopped the use of herbicides and then moved to organics with yes, Christoph. Exactly. And what was that conversion process like? It was natural for me. Uh, I've, I was concerned by, uh, by nature, and uh, I think Christoph sold me the idea uh, very well, and I followed him. Christophe Moran worked at Dujac from 1987 until his death in 2001. And during that period of time, the interest around stopping the use of herbicides and implementing organic farming practices at Dujac would increase, as Jeremy Says described. You know, the, the 60s, 70s was, um, and, and 50s were, were the chemical days. It was, um, erosion was an issue on some of, this, uh, some of the slopes. How do you manage the vineyard? You're just going to do hand hoe everything. It's a ton of work, very expensive for wines that aren't that easy to sell at the time. And uh, very effective molecules that could, uh, with one spray, mean you never had to put the tractor again for to control the grass. It was sold as well. We were sold on it as just this is not going to be especially polluting because it's got a very short half-life and so on. Well, we know we're finding stuff in the water table um, everywhere in the world from stuff that was sprayed 50 years ago and is still somehow there, even though it had a half-life of six months, apparently. So I think there's much greater skepticism in Burgundy in general, but certainly in our household, there's huge skepticism about what is promised by the people who produce these things. And there's also more of an understanding of what happens in terms of soil chemistry. And I think we've got much more consciousness of, of the fact that we aren't exploiting the land. We are stewards of the land, and we have to treat it as a very finite resource that once we've screwed it up, just the rebuilding or the reconstructing of a soil structure, of a soil ecosystem is not so simple. We're fortunate that actually they, they are somewhat forgiving, the, the great soils of Burgundy, because of that clay structure that is not, that, there's a lot of clay, but it doesn't compact very much. Plus, it gets worked over. Every cold winter works the soil in a big way. But still, we were keen to... Um, 
were keen to move away from that system. People were looking at cover crops at the time in a way that you know pushed the vine- uh, pushed the roots deeper, um, bring down vigor generally, and bring down yields. So with young vines, this was definitely something that was of interest as we were replanting, as I mentioned um, at the time. So we started doing cover crops in the row, but we didn't we hadn't didn't yet have a solution for what's happening between each vine and around around the vine. So under the row, we were still using um, herbicides. And we wanted to move away from that, but we were waiting for some tractor equipment to be developed, and they were really perfecting it fast at the time. And when, and we also needed an extra tractor driver, and we needed to find the right person to be attentive because a hoe that goes between vines is great as long as it's going between vines. But if it's not adjusted properly, it's taking the grass out and the vines, and that's a <laughs> that's a problem. So in '98, we moved to full uh, zero herbicides. Um, I think it was in '98, and um, and no regrets. I mean, it was a, it was a great thing to do, and you know, we 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 talked about going organic. And Claude Lefebvre's trials about organic versus non-organic were were really compelling and really interesting. It really asked a lot of questions. That the the differences were striking, and so that 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 certainly played around our mind and shouldn't do it because it's it's you know because you've got to sell your wine more easily. I mean that's one reason. But you've got to do it when you're ready. These are things that are big decisions because it's like when you're on the trapeze and you're going to, not that I've ever been on a trapeze, but I imagine now we're going to do it without the net. And you've got to be confident about your ability to read the diseases in the vineyard. So in 2001, we decided to move organic. And so Christophe Mohan was, uh, did that first year. It was a big step to move organic. And Christophe Moran is somebody who pushed that move forward in the Dujac vineyards with the support of the Saith family. Uh, what I learned with my dad, when you have someone you feel is really good, you have to trust him and give him confidence. The day Christophe was there, I did never, never said a word about what we should do in the vineyard. So Christophe, you do what you feel should be done. And if it's Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and if you want to go play on, on, on Thursday and Friday, you do. What I'm looking for is the best fruits the day of harvest. But Christophe Moran had already participated in an organic vineyard conversion at Domaine de l'Arlo with Jean-Pierre de Smet and Didier Fornerol. The, when we arrived and we bought the, the domain de l'Arlo, well, the, the property, uh, there were no no stock, no no one bottle in the cellar, no files, no clients, nothing, but uh, a team of um, of uh, people working in the vineyard, and uh, Didier was uh, the, the chief of the of the of the team, so he had three people working with him. And then uh, he became my uh, my uh, vineyard manager, uh, assisted by Christophe Morin, uh, who was the vineyard manager at uh, Domaine du Jacques. Well, I would like to talk about Christophe because Christophe was a great, great person, a great uh, guy, and uh, he has been helping us a lot because his knowledge about uh, vineyard was great and. Uh, and we shared a lot of things together. And uh, I, I, at this time, I knew almost all, 
more or less how to make a wine but uh, I was not that good for the vineyard I have ideas general ideas but uh, not specific ideas I didn't my background was definitely not in the vineyard and uh, so I was lucky enough to have Christophe uh, as a consultant let's say but spending a lot of time uh, with us uh, and uh, giving advices and, uh, and and sometimes working with us as well to show uh, to show how it was so unfortunately Christophe passed away in a, in a motorbike accident uh, but he was a great great person yes while he was there you converted the estate over to organics yes yes uh, I have to say it has been not uh with uh, Christophe it has been with Christophe but it was not his uh, idea it was my uh, it has been my idea the first year so uh, we we started in uh, we bought the domain in uh, the late 86 and uh, so the first year has been uh, hesitating and uh, learning a lot uh, and uh, in 88 we started the organic uh, culture and uh, so it has been not 100% the first year at all but we started the process in uh, in 88 and at the beginning uh, Christophe was not that fan of uh, of uh, this uh, not of organic but uh, uh, it was such much more uh, work in the vineyard he thought uh, the team won't accept and uh, it was different it was difficult uh, once he told me but uh, your team won't accept to plow uh, by hand the vineyard uh, I said let's start and let's stay let's test and uh, we'll see but uh, we'll have to go th that way it's so important and uh, and so afterwards he he did and he managed uh, the organic culture definitely but at the beginning he was not not that fan of that yes. it's worth pointing out here some of Christoph's strengths as a vineyard manager which give you an idea partly of why people remember him with such fondness and respect still today Christoph was somebody who knew a lot about vine material like in different clones and he knew a lot about pruning Oh yes, yes, he was really yes, and I have to say, uh, he, we started uh, the selection massal with Christophe. We did the, the work with Didier Fornerol, but it has been with uh, with Christophe that we started that. Uh, he was a very, very good uh, in the vineyard. Yes, he, he knew definitely very well how to work in the vineyard and he knew the materials and so the first plantation including the whites we mentioned uh, in the Claude Larlo have been planted with clones because I was not ready with my selection myself and I started uh, the planting uh, our own selection myself in uh, 2000 in the Claude Larlo and it has been a good success and afterwards every plantation has been done with, uh, with our selection myself yes and how did Christophe approach the pruning with Arlo? Uh, Christophe was uh, very concerned by the by two things: as much leaves as possible, and as much air as possible. Which could seem contradictory, but uh, it could work depending on the the, the 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 way you are pruning. And so we did experiment. 
uh, new way of pruning with Christophe, uh, which were definitely not common at all uh, in Burgundy in these times. That was in the late 80s. And uh, in these times, that was a Guyot, a Guyot sample or Guyot double at least. And that's it. Or very few people were um, were pruning uh, differently and uh, with Christophe uh, we we started uh, testing uh, other ways and uh, and and i have to say i was very pleased yes so what did he do horizontal it was horizontal yes it was horizontal i mean there were leaves everywhere branches and leaves everywhere all around the along the wires and there were no holes between the, the 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 plants, even though the plants are planted uh, one meter from each other, um, uh, in the Guyot sample, uh, very often there is a lot of leaves together, and then a hole with nothing, and 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 the other plant a lot of leaves and a hole with nothing, and so we develop the leaves and the branches uh, all along the wires, and so there were less leaves together more air going through and so to me it was uh, a good progress yes another of christoph's strengths had to do with limiting yields as jock Sace acknowledged he was very focused on pruning i was focused on the vineyard everything yeah so one of the things jeremy said is that christoph made young vines act like old vines by bringing down yields and would you agree with that or yes i would agree yeah jeremy says further expanded on that concept of making young vines act like old vines and what that meant at domaine du jacques what you tend to get with old vines though is is as a whole they produce less they, they become a little less vigorous when they become I mean, sometimes it takes 30 years to have that drop in vigor sometimes it takes 50 or 60 years and then when you get, you, you frequently get a bit of virus in old vines, so you get those small shot berries, mirandage. Um, and that, other than bringing down your production, also makes for really great juice-to-skin ratios, um, a lot of skin, and, and you get a texture to old vines. That, the 2012s, it's like everything was old vines because we had that poor flowering, so everything was mirande. So you get that sort of intensity and juicy extra, uh, slightly thicker texture, but you don't get the weight, and that's the wonderful thing about it. So very old vines, there's just this intensity of wine into it that, that comes there. And with young vines, they can make great wines. You, you, I mean, after they've turned 10, you, you, you usually already have very good sight expression and very good, the sense of place that terroir comes across. On the other hand, they're regular in terms of yields. They might produce a huge, a huge yield one year. The next year, they're a little tired because they went. So there's kind of start-stop sometimes to them. Because they're more vigorous and produce more compact bunches, because they're usually virus-free, you might get a bit more botrytis in them as well. So we were looking to calming down that vigor and to also forcing down the roots deeper into the soil. People say vines have to suffer. It's a common cliche in the wine business. I'll call it for what it is. It's total bullshit. Vines must not suffer. On the other hand, vines must work. You can't put them in a pool of water, nitrogen, phosphorus, and so on. They've got to go get it, and, they've got, and that's, that's where you get the best expression. So drought years, where vines actually do suffer, usually the wines aren't that good. You frequently get the hard tannins because they didn't ripen properly, because there was water stress or whatever. But a vine that works, so it was a question of trying to get them to push them in terms of 
of work is the, the making them behave like old vines. So cover crops have their role because they compete with the vine. If you have a cover crop that's too aggressive, you're going to stress that vine. But if you have the right cover crop, and it might take change because the first year it can take a very light competition. The second year can take a little more. So we start with cover crops and then we let come back what wanted in terms of we became a much more eco, eco broader ecosystem, richer ecosystem as, as natural weed would come and repopulate the, the area. That led to some competition and, and a drop in vigor. Jeremy also spoke about that change in the pruning technique that Christophe Moran introduced. Another thing was changing the pruning system. We, we, we put a lot of double cordial. The, the spur pruning, because of its dispersal mechanism, the vine, the further it's away from, uh, from the foot of the vine and its roots, the more fertile those buds are. Which makes sense, as you can imagine, if a vine is growing on trees in a jungle and it wants to go, um, go forth and, and multiply uh, far away from itself. And so the spurs, which are very close to the, to the root, is a good way of dropping your vigor. It was also a good way of aerating the canopy and, and, and doing away with having less botrytis pressure, things like that. So the, the change in pruning system and the cover crops were two big things in terms of trying to get them to behave like old vines. Christophe Moran's work had a big impact on Domaine du Jacques, and Christophe's death in a motorcycle accident also led to changes at du Jacques, as Jeremy Seyss made clear. You know, too, after Christophe Moran, after he passed away, I felt like I had to take a whole bunch of responsibility that he, the things that, um, that Christophe, our vineyard manager, but also cellar master, um, had been covering. And um, that led me to... Um, to take on, to shoulder a certain number of decisions. Jeremy became more involved with Dujac, the family winery, after Christophe's death. And you can grasp, by hearing these people speak in succession now, how a chance meeting at Becky Wasserman's house changed the course of several people's lives and work over the next several decades. And to hear further about that period and more, from an American perspective, Please listen to the interview coming up after the break. I talk to winemakers all the time. And something they tell me is that oxygen management is a key to aging wine. Finding the right balance is crucial. And that's why I recommend DM's revolutionary cork closures. With DM corks, winemakers can achieve precisely controlled oxygen management after a bottle leaves the winery ensuring a wine that matures gracefully and reaches its full potential. With over 2 billion DM corks sold each year, it's clear that winemakers worldwide trust DM for consistent results. And DM has recently expanded the permeability options for their popular DM10 and DM30 closures, providing winemakers with even more flexibility to choose a cork that will guarantee the kind of wine life they envision. Banish surprise dud bottles and embrace DM closures. Your customers will thank you. In North America, DM products are exclusively distributed by G3 Enterprises. Ready to ensure the lifespan of your wines? Go to dm-closures.com forward slash IDTT to learn more. That's D-I-A-M-closures with an S dot com forward slash IDTT for more information.
Steve Dorner, the winemaker emeritus at Christum Vineyards in Oregon on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, you go back a long ways and you were originally studying biochemistry at UC Davis. That's correct. I guess I started in 74 and, and majored in biochemistry with the idea that I was trying to go to medical school to start with. So that's kind of why I chose that major. But I realized pretty early on that that was not the path for me. But the path for me didn't appear right away either. So I was just kind of uh, hanging out there, finishing up school. And it, it took me till, you know, final quarter, basically spring quarter of my senior year to start really thinking hard about what it was that I thought I wanted to do or what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I think that my first plan was to go back to school for another quarter and take some classes that I hadn't had a chance to take just because the biochemistry program is pretty restrictive and, and uh, maybe go to graduate school. And, but I kind of realized that both those were just to buy time to hope that something that would just fall in my lap, like it ended up happening actually. But um, so I was kind of just at the right place at the right time. And I had a, a vague curiosity about wine. Um, and I, I don't really know where it came from. I mean, my mom's side of the family is French. Both my grandparents on her side were immigrants from France, not from a wine region, but you know, they, uh, there was a little bit of that culture at our house, but it was never talked about or we just had wine around, but it was usually in a, you know, gallon jug and left out on the counter till it was consumed and it might've taken a week to get through it or something, you know. Or it could have been just the proximity of Davis to the wine country because, you know, we go over there just friends and stuff to taste. But it was more of a social activity, just something to do rather than I was that intrigued with it. It was and and then maybe through just osmosis of being at Davis that had this world famous wine course there. Um, although I never took a class from that department, nor did I even know anybody that was in it. I just had kind of heard about it through the grapevine that, you know. Davis was known to have a good wine school, but for whatever reason, um, I was curious enough about it to um, approach one of my biochemistry professors and asked if, you know, the wine industry ever hired, you know, biochemists. And he says, well, your chances would have been much better had you taken an analogy. Um, kind of, you know, said, oh, great, you know, so I'll, I'll keep thinking about this for a while. And, um, in the meantime, just serendipitously, he got a letter that came across his desk from a small California winery. Turns out it was Calera, who was specifically kind of looking for um, either biochemistry major or, or microbiology and to come apply for a job. And so uh, this professor remembered that I had asked him about it and kind of hunted me down and showed me the letter. And, and then I felt obligated to go interview for that job and ended up you know, working for Josh Jensen for 14 years. And that was really the early days of Calera. Yeah, that was uh, 1978. And Josh had made some Zinfandels. I think his first one was 75, actually, from purchased fruit. And he made it over at Shalon. So, 78 was the first vintage of anything being processed at the Calera site. And it was the first Pinot Noir vintage. Although, ironically, even though that's Josh's whole goal was to make Pinot Noir that that first year. I remember specifically just because it was my first year and it was memorable, but that we, I think we processed about 98 tons of Zinfandel uh, from different vineyards and one and a half tons of Pinot Noir. So, it was a minuscule amount of Pinot Noir that we started with and, and it really took forever to even ramp it up. He had planted the vineyard in 70, 
74, I think, was the first acre, and then the the rest of it was in 75. Um, so, you know, the first very first vintage was 78. So that, that those were the early days, although, you know, Josh had made some wine before I got there. But his um, reasoning for not wanting someone from, you know, a, a trained enologist or something was, um, you know, at the time, Davis was kind of teaching, you know, sanitize, filter, basically make the wines standard. And uh, he thought that he wanted to make wine in a very old world style. You know, he had lived in, in France for several years and, and primarily in Burgundy, although he traveled around a lot, but he, he became friends. They were all kind of his peers from some of the, you know, what we think of as the iconic winemakers over there now. So he had these relationships and they were all telling him, you know, that first of all, he leaned limestone. That was his, his biggest um, lesson, I guess. And, and, and then just how, how they were making the wines and stuff. So when I got there, I did have what he wanted in terms of being able to do lab work because he, he, he was very smart and went to some Ivy League schools and stuff, but he didn't study any sciences. So I don't think Josh really knew what a pH was at the time. So he, he wanted that background. That way I could do some lab work and stuff for him. And um, he at the time he had a consultant who actually developed this new enzymatic assay for lots of things, but it was primarily there to measure malic acid. And it had not been, you know, marketed as a kit or anything. And, and this guy, is, Leo Maklowski was his name. He was over at Felton Road over in Santa Cruz. So that he was recommending to Josh that he needed someone to do this test because then you could monitor the malolactic fermentation much more accurately than the old kind of wet chemistry method that people used at the time. And and so in, in that sense, uh, Calera was quite modern because we, we bought this little spec photometer, even though the lab was in a trailer and that was our office and everything for the whole time I was there. And so uh, it was pretty rustic in most cases, but this one little piece of equipment was um, something that most wineries, even larger than us, didn't have at the time. And so anyway, that was one of the impetuses for finding someone like me. But also, I think it was just so that he wouldn't have to untrain me or, you know, change my biases. He wanted someone that was unschooled about wine so that he didn't have to unteach them. Exactly. And because I had no wine background, I didn't have to, you know, the slate did not have to be wiped clean. One of the things that just came to my mind, though, about um, my interview with Josh, which was kind of interesting, and, and I really didn't know much about wine. And one of the things that I had to do for him was rank some wines in order of preference. So it was like this blind tasting. And I didn't even know what a blind tasting meant. You know, if, if you'd said that to me, I would have thought I had to put a blindfold on or something. But anyway, he made it pretty easy, but I was still pretty intimidated because I had never done that. And I can't even remember the fourth wine, but there was a, a Clara Zinfandel that Josh had made. There was a neighbor's, I think it was Zinfandel as well, that from down the street. And it, and um, the fourth wine was um, a Latash. And of course, I'd never heard of Latash. I didn't, didn't even know really that Burgundy was where Pinot Noir came from, right? So we weren't even comparing the same varieties in most cases. I think there might have been three Zinfandels in this, in this Latash. Anyway, he had me taste them. And so I'm going, oh boy, this is great. My job depends on it, although I wasn't all that invested anyway, because I, like I said, I had sort of taken that as a, because my professor had told me. But anyway, I got, I ranked them in Latash first and the uh, Calera Zinfandel next. And I don't remember what I did with the other ones. I think Josh didn't even really like his neighbor. So he didn't care that I may put it last or something. 
But I don't know if that had anything to do with me getting the job, but I, I think it just demonstrated to Josh that at least I was malleable, you know, and, and could uh, learn, hopefully, or had enough of a palate that I could distinguish those two obvious differences. So I thought that was kind of funny because I started my tasting career kind of at the top and had nowhere else to go. What was he like back then, Josh Jensen? He was very nice. He was very busy. I think part of what he needed somebody immediately, he actually wanted me to start working before I even graduated because he was desperate to have somebody come to the winery and just do day-to-day, you know, topping. And the we had one seller that had just been finished and he needed someone to move barrels around. And he was out trying to sell the first Zinfandel that he had made. So, he was on the road a lot and he did hire somebody else to uh, work with me for a little bit that summer uh, just to show me how to wash a hose and basic, basic stuff. You know, I didn't even know wines needed to be topped, but the wines that he'd already had there were in a outdoor, it was a bonded area, but it was just a chain link fence on gravel and they were outside and Halster is a pretty hot spot, you know. So, um, it was, it was very challenging to, uh, make wine in those conditions, you know, because we used garden hoses. We didn't have built-in plumbing and no drains. Uh, it was, it was pretty rustic, but anyway, that's kind of how I started out and I didn't really know anything different at the time, but I did spend that first summer, you know, trying to move some barrels from outdoors into this cellar that had been the only place that had a roof on it, uh, finally. And, and that was, uh, maintain that way for quite a few years anyway. But um, I kind of got off the track about what was Josh like, you know, but he he seemed, he was very nice and everything, and but he was kind of uh, busy. I, I got the feeling he was very busy, he had a lot on his mind. Uh, he was late for the first time I met him, you know, I'd driven down from Davis and he was still like an hour after I was there and stuff. So, things like that, which you know, I just noticed, but he was, he was very serious. Um, he took, he took the winemaking very, uh, seriously, you know, I mean, I remember him telling me that, uh, he had a guy helping him one time and he says, Hey, do you want me to move this shit from here to here? And he looks at me very sternly and says, don't ever call this wine shit. (laughs) And I always took that to heart. So I, I never did. And that was probably a good thing to hear before I made that mistake myself. But yeah, he was quite quite personable. Um, he actually wanted me to, as I said, he wanted me to drop out of school and come help him right away. And and I, I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure this is going to stick. I at least want to get my degree, right? And so, I, I finished school. But I did end up working for him for a couple weekends, even before I actually was officially hired or started. And it was almost part of the interview process, I think, just to wash some barrels and stuff like that. Um, so, I think he was just trying to get some free labor. <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. Let's do a little test. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was, uh, at, it's funny, just I never really knew where the money was coming from or not coming from, but there were periods where we were, you know, he was just scraping by and other periods where it seemed like we, you know, had money to spare. So, um, I don't know what the situation was exactly with the financial thing, but in the beginning it was, you know, very little pay, very little of anything, but he did, he was, he was quite generous and he wanted to educate me. One of the things that was surprising, even though I felt like I wasn't being paid very much, was he gave me a little winery budget to go spend on buying wines because he realized that I hadn't done that really. And so, that was kind of nice because I, you know, I, I didn't have a lot, but I, I could go out and buy some bottles of wine and taste them uh, just to get educated a little bit. So, 
that didn't last forever, but you know, for that year or so, I, I was able to uh, experience some wines. And I mostly bought Zinfandels because that's where most of the, first of all, they were more affordable, although Pinot Noir wasn't as expensive as it became, but it was still, Zins were pretty easy to get to. And, and um, I was, I was uh, trying to learn what I had more responsibility for. So anyway, that was my impression of Josh. And he was, he was around a lot, but he was also gone a lot. Like that, that first summer, especially, he was off trying to sell wine. So he was doing his own marketing and everything. And, and there was a little house. Um, well, actually, Josh actually lived in a trailer at the time before the little house on the property was. But he had a place in San Francisco, and then he would come down. And so he was there three or four days and gone three or four days. And because he was doing all the marketing, he was gone an awful lot, too. So I was alone a lot. Uh, that first year was tough on me. Actually, I hadn't I hadn't um, gotten the bug, the wine bug. Like you weren't a serious wine guy. I was not this passion. Oh my God, I gotta do. You know, first I think a lot of people get into it because they love wine and they make some in their garage, and pretty soon they start doing that all the time, and and you know they just end up quitting their job and starting a winery, which wasn't me. So uh, you know, all my friends were back in school and going to parties and. They all took a trip to Europe that summer when I was working my butt off, and um, so it was it was a difficult first harvest for me. The um, we actually you know crushed quite a bit of fruit for being that new and small. You know we had about close to a hundred tons, as I mentioned. It was almost all Zinfandel, and then it's one and a half tons of Pinot Noir, but still quite a bit of wine, and we pretty much had to do it ourselves. I remember um, one other little experience from that first year that was kind of interesting is we were buying. Zinfandel from basically three locations, but um, one around uh, Templeton, which is right next to Paso Robles down there, was was from these two widows, these two Italian women. One of them was Mrs. Martinelli and the other was Mrs. Grove. And they were like right next to each other, but they hated each other. And neither one, I think, would have sold us grapes if they'd known the other one was selling us. So I had to go pick up the grapes and they were picked. But they were out in the vineyard in wooden picking boxes, you know, like 40-pound lug boxes at the ends of the rows, but just left out in the vineyard. So I was down there in our flatbed truck and had to borrow the farm pickup truck to go around and load each bin onto the pickup truck, get on the truck, stack them up, drive it to the flatbed, start then unloading them and putting them on the truck, and then somehow do the same thing at the other farm, pretending that... I don't know where those grapes came from or that they didn't come from your neighbor that you don't like. You know, I mean, they were, I was supposed to somehow pretend like they didn't know that the other one was getting fruit. But the thing that I thought about when I got back to the winery and started dumping each of these bins into the destemmer, well, actually, yeah, the crusher destemmer at the time, we were crushing fruit back then, was that I picked up every one of those boxes at least four times. And it was, it was only five tons. But I mean, that day I, I lifted 20 tons worth of fruit. But, you know, I was young and it, it didn't really dawn on me at the time. But, I mean, that was just a typical thing that I just didn't know that you did. And so, it wasn't all that much fun, you know, without having that kind of passion. But um, anyway, that was one of my days that we had. Uh, we, speaking of equipment, I don't know if that's relevant or not, but we had um, a relatively brand new um, destemmer that Josh had just imported the year before. He bought it in 77, and it was supposed to be uh, pretty good. It was called the Demoisy, but the uh, fruit was crushed before it went to the destemming part. Uh, today's most crusher destemmers, if they even have crushing, at least for Pinot Noir, is kind of rare now. 
but they usually do the destemming first and then the crushing, but this crushed before the destemming. And later on when we did experiments with whole cluster, for example, um, we found, or at least I think there was some odd instances where you got more stemminess out of the destem stuff than you did the whole cluster stuff. And kind of my hypothesis was, you know, we were getting rid of about 90% of the stems and then 10% of them were getting mashed up so much that it it actually gave you more of a vegetal kind of a quality in the stuff that was uh, destemmed. So that was one of the reasons, I think, because we did experiments that we ended up, you know, going so much to a whole cluster program there besides our mentors were doing that as well, but um, we wanted to try it out for ourselves. And certainly the Zinfandel was completely destemmed, you know. Well, I've definitely had some 80s, like early 80s Calera Pinots that I thought had some greenness. And I, I couldn't tell you if it was what you're referring to there or if it, if it was whole cluster. But it was part of the signature of that era. Right. Well, and there, and there you can get that with even without destemming anything, of course, you can get stemminess, and, and that, that's the fine line that you're always kind of treading when you're using whole cluster, is how do you get the positive stuff from it and without the negative, which there are some negatives sometimes, you know, so, um, but I don't remember what year, it wasn't an, an abrupt transition from destemming everything to 100% whole cluster, but over a period of time, for sure, we ended up at 100% whole cluster. And it was it was pretty early on that that took place, you know. But, you know, back then in the late 70s and early 80s, there were not a lot of peers who were uh, making Pinot Noir in kind of that old world style. I, I think Shalom probably was the one that was doing the best job. And there were some others too. But, I mean, uh, the general recipe for Pinot Noir was it was a red wine, so you made it like you made Cabernet. You know, there was not the specialization where it's a different variety, so you treat it completely differently. And so um, a lot of People would just rack it frequently, destem it, you know, pump it over, whatever, to uh, try to mimic Cabernet. And interestingly, it seems like at the time, too, color was a big focus. You know, everybody wanted the Pinot Noir to look like Cabernet, too, which was almost impossible to achieve. But the darker you could make it, the more people thought it was real wine. And that uh, if it if it was a light like a Pinot Noir, then there was something wrong with it, you know. So it was an unfortunate focus on on color, you know. So that was uh, one of the things that my first trip to Burgundy kind of taught me was that, uh, first of all, some of the things that we thought we were doing to make the wine were not correct for what Pinot Noir should have been. It's worth bringing in here a comment from Jean-Pierre Desmet, who we heard from before and who worked a number of harvests with Jacques at Domaine du Jacques before going on to found Domaine de Larlo in Nuit saint George. I have to say that um, making uh, eight vintages uh, uh, over 10 years with Jacques Sess, uh, I was convinced, and making so many tests with him, with a uh, whole cluster or 100% distemmed, that I was definitely convinced when arriving at, uh, at Larlo that the uh, whole cluster was more the, the style of wine I loved and I wanted to, to produce. And so it's even more and much more important to have uh, the grapes uh, not uh, uh, not touch, not uh, scratch, not uh, as uh, as as they are in the vineyard. They should be in the in the vat, and uh, 
because uh, if uh, he's scratching the the stems, that's uh, that's uh, terrible. So one of the reasons you liked whole cluster was that it also meant whole berry because you weren't messing up the berries when you're pulling out the stems. Ah, definitely. The the the, the point is not the is not the the the, <clears throat> the stems. No, the, it's the whole berries. It's uh, the, the the process of uh, ferm- starting the, the fermentation inside the berries and then opening, and uh, it makes uh, the 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 process of fermentation uh, much smoother than uh, if you have uh, half half the vat uh, with juice. Uh, in that case, we have maybe twenty uh, percent or less, or ten percent of juice underneath the the grapes. That lets the fermentation start. And then it's, it uh, it starts inside the berries, and that's the point. It's not uh, it's not uh, the the fact that having the the stems. The stems have no interest. On the contrary, the stems uh, uh, take uh, take uh, acidity. They take color. Uh, so they take alcohol. So it's not uh, it's the stems are not good. The, the interest of the whole cluster is to have the whole berries. We'll return to the interview with Steve Dorner after this message from a sponsor. I've been lucky enough to try some amazing wines while traveling over the years. Unfortunately, I've found that some of those same wines are really hard to find here in the United States. Whenever I run into trouble finding a favorite bottle, I go to idealwine.com and they have what I'm looking for. Whether it is a hard-to-source bottle of Burgundy or a micro-production natural wine like I Need the Sun by Domaine de Miroir, I know there's a chance that Ideal Wine might have it available. And Ideal Wine's entire Paris inventory is available to American customers with just a click. The process is seamless, the site is easy to use, and orders are shipped directly to you. Head over to idealwine.com, that's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com, to see for yourself what you could be drinking. Like this focus on color, one of the things was heat. You know, you have to have a hot fermentation to extract more color, and that was everybody's big focus. And so when I first got to Burgundy and started asking questions, and I'd say, do you need a hot fermentation to and make Pinot Noir? And they said, oh yeah, you must, you must ferment hot. Yes, that's correct, you know. And so I said, okay. But then I'd get around to finding out what hot was, and they'd say, well, you know, sometimes it gets to 30 centigrade, and I'm going, oh, that's different than California hot, you know, because <laughs> we, were, we were getting to 38 or something sometimes. So I realized that the definition of hot in uh, one place is not the same as the definition of hot in California. And so uh, that was one of the kind of generalities that I, I came back with was that you have to interpret things from a different perspective. Because you often had to get ice, right, to control the temperature in the early days? Yes, Especially that very first vintage. I, I can't remember. If, I think it was just the first vintage, actually, because Josh had set up this little winery again. He, he, it was bonded area. It wasn't in a building. So it was a chain link fence, gravel floor. And we had a sump pump that we put water and ice in and, and just garden hoses to some jacketed tanks, primarily for the Zinfandel because there was very little of the Pinot yet. But that brings up another story, if you will, um, near the end of the 78 harvest, you know, it was again, it was pretty hot and it was a Sunday and we needed to go get some more ice. Usually we'd go to Hollister, which is about, you know, 25 minutes away. So it was, you know, close to an hour's round trip just to get the ice from there. 
but the um, ice manufacturer in Hollister wasn't open on Sundays. So that particular Sunday, I had to drive all the way to Salinas to uh, get some ice. And we had this old flatbed truck with sideboards on it. And so um, I'd go down there and pack in these 300-pound blocks of ice as tight as you could make them so that it was pretty secured. But being a hot day and stuff, I was coming back and um, had a blowout in this uh, old flatbed truck and ended up rolling the truck three times on Highway 101. Uh, just outside of Watsonville kind of area. And there was ice scattered all over this, the road. And, and I luckily was helped out of the vehicle. It kind of ended upside down and oil and gas was dripping on me. Plus I was a mess from just harvested, you know, it was near the end of harvest. So I was tired and raggedy. And uh, then I was dirty from, you know, working in the winery. And then plus I had oil and gas all over me. So I was, I was a mess. But anyway, a good Samaritan jumped in the cab with me and helped get me out of there because it was it was kind of scary i thought the thing might catch on fire anyway long story short i um, ended up in the hospital had knee surgery and got a staph infection so the surgery was very successful but the infection was very persistent and actually didn't get rid of it for about a year i mean i was in the hospital for about a month and then they put me on you know oral antibiotics for about six months after that and then the following harvest just when i again got kind of run down and tired and the infection came back and they actually surgically had to scrape it out again to get rid of it. But the silver lining was that, you know, that, that first finish, as I said, I was pretty depressed and I had made a commitment to Josh to work for him for a couple of years. And his commitment back to me, which seemed normal to me at the moment, was that if I wanted to leave after two years, I could. And, you know, thinking back, I said, well, that wasn't really a commitment. <laughs> I mean, I would hope that you could leave whenever you wanted to, right? So, uh, Anyway, we hadn't signed any contracts or anything, but I did have this verbal agreement. And so it was kind of weighing me down because I wasn't as happy as I had wanted to be. But that time in the hospital gave me a lot of time to think. And Josh came over and visited quite a bit. And, he, you know, he took care of me. He was good. Um, but after having that sort of heart-to-heart -heart talk with him and he said, you know, you, you, you can't, you can leave whenever you want. I mean, I didn't mean it to be an indentured servant or anything. And so um, it just took that kind of weight off of my shoulders and... Then I had the ability, you know, that I didn't, I, I didn't feel stuck. So it, it, things started getting easier and easier in terms of just my appreciation for what I was doing. But it still didn't, still took me to probably tell um, my first trip to Burgundy till I really felt like, wow, I, I kind of understand it now. You know, it was just such a different experience when I first went to Burgundy, and uh, that was an important trip because it, it changed my uh, outlook. I think, you know, it was not just a job; it was a whole culture. And it was very honorable and, you know, the wines are great. I mean, I just, I just fell in love with Burgundy and it was my first trip to Europe and, you know, it was a smart move for Josh to send me there. What year was that? That was in 1981. So it was the summer of 81 when I first went. I had, I uh, had three vintages only, you know, and the amount of Pinot Noir that we'd made up to that point really wasn't that much because we had ton and a half in 78 and I think we got seven and a half tons in 79 and probably 10 or 12 in, I don't remember exactly, in 80. So this was before the 81 harvest. And um, we had gotten an intern that year that actually showed up uh, in January, I believe, of 81. And that was Christophe Morin, who was working in at Domaine de la Folie, which is, I think it's in Chani um, or close to there. And so that's very close to Aubert de Valen's house. And so Christophe had asked Aubert if he knew of some place where he could work. And so, um, Aubert introduced him to Josh. And so, we hired Christoph that year to uh, come and work with us. 
So he lived with me. We were roommates. So Christoph sort of held down the fort while I was gone because it really was a small operation. And um, so I went there in the summertime and had, you know, it's only there for a couple of weeks. It wasn't that long. And I did a little bit of visiting, but mostly spent most of my time in, in Burgundy and, and got to, uh, I, I stayed at Aubert de Valen's house for a little while. I stayed at Jacques Cesse's house for a little while. And, and those two guys especially were people that Josh knew well. So I was very fortunate to have those introductions and they treated me, you know, very well. I mean, one of the things Josh wanted me to do was bring our tiny little production of some Pinot Noirs over the three different vineyards that we made in half bottles. The 78 vintage was all made in half bottles. He wanted me to take these and uh, do a tasting that Jacques helped organize of, you know, eight or so of Burgundian winemakers and, and get all their feedback, you know, which was pretty intimidating again here. And, and the wines, I have to say, in 78 were, they were pretty good, but they weren't great. I mean, they were very extracted, you know, those, that, those kinds of yields. You can imagine that one and a half tons was not off of an acre. It was off 24 acres. So there was a, a cluster on a vine here and a, two clusters on a vine there. And so it was, it was very low yields. And so it was, it was pretty intense, you know, pretty um, extracted and stuff from my perspective anyway now, looking back. But they were all very kind and, you know, I got the feedback that Josh wanted to hear and stuff. And so they're very kind to me. But I think Josh must have been well-liked because they were all very friendly and everything. Some of those guys are whole cluster guys, right? Obviously, Jacques Sace was 100% whole cluster by then. I think he also experimented a lot. And, you know, he was kind of an outsider to begin with. He, he you know, was from Paris. His dad owned a big part of Nabisco or something, a huge bakery. So he grew up with fine wines, had a great cellar. I mean, Jacques had, you know, he was very worldly. When he got to Burgundy, everybody was making Pinot Noir and they tasted their own wines and maybe a couple of their neighbors, if, if even that. Um, but Jacques had wines from the New World, from Bordeaux, from Alsace, from Italy, you know, he had a great, great cellar. Jacques was quite, quite uh, open-minded and he did a lot of experiment in early years. I remember him talking about trying to use, uh, just on a laboratory scale, like an ultrasound machine that would clean jewelry and stuff to see if he could get more extraction from this little vibrating thing. And of course, he, he never used it commercially that I know of, but, you know, he, he was curious enough that he would he would try lots of stuff and ironically i think he came back to what i think they were doing in burgundy hundreds of years before because he did a lot of reading and and stuff and and kind of tried to reinvent things in a way but he i think he ended up making wines in a very traditional way in the end even though he was open-minded about new technologies and trying all kinds of stuff that's kind of what i think i admired about him in comparison to a lot of other burgundians who were often making wine the way their dad did not that there was anything wrong with that, but, you know, you'd ask him a question. And here I was kind of a scientist, so I was saying, why do you do this? And often they couldn't answer. They just says, well, this is how we do it. One of the things that I remember specifically that just kind of puzzled me was that this was prior to silicone bung use, right? There were a few people in Burgundy, they were ahead of us in California that were using silicone. It was a guy at Pusta Or, for example. But most people still had these wooden, little short little wooden bungs with burlap. And that's what we often saw when the wines got, or the barrels got shipped to us, is little burlap holding this little wooden bung in there. In California at the time, we had wooden redwood pegs that were, you know, eight inches long. We had a mallet and you hammered them down. And then if you wanted to get them out, you just tapped on the side and loosened them 
pull them out. And the redwood being softer, it just kind of conformed to the bunghole and made a pretty good seal. But when I asked people why the burlap was there, they said, well, that's how we get it out because otherwise we couldn't get the bung out. But I saw wicking going on and there was like often, I mean, they change it every time they top, but sometimes there'd be mold and stuff growing on that burlap because the wine was being sucked out almost like a candle wick, you know, out, out into that bung. And so I just couldn't really figure out. I thought, well, maybe they're trying to oxidize it or somehow, but you know, the, the only explanation was that this is what they always did. <laughs> and they thought it was to be able to get that wooden bung out, but it just seemed to me, cause I was used to having these long ones, you just use them out. Why not just get a bung that you can tap out instead of having it so short that you had no leverage on it and had to have that burlap in there. And so I really didn't know that that was the reason. And, and, but it just struck me that they weren't really sure either. Um, they just were doing it all the time and that's what they had. But then very shortly after, I think everybody started using the, the silicone bunks, but that was one thing that uh, puzzled me. I think you probably ended up meeting some people who have subsequently passed away. Well, Christoph Moran, who I mentioned earlier, who had stayed in California and lived with me for about nine months, ended up ultimately um, working for Jacques Sace as his uh, vineyard manager. I think he started in 85 there as full-time vineyard manager. And he also, of course, knew Aubert de Valen because he had worked nearby. He was, Christophe was actually from the Loire Valley. Um, and I think he'd gone to school in Bordeaux. But I'm regressing. I'm thinking of a story about Christophe's family because my first trip there in 81, he had written ahead his family to, if I made it over to the Loire Valley, take good care of me. And so I, you know, I wanted to go visit his family while I was there. So I just took a weekend and overnight train and you know, it's hard to get across France to go from, say, Burgundy over to Saumur is not an easy route. And so, anyway, I ended up getting into Saumur like at four in the morning, hadn't really slept at all and, and didn't want to bother his mom and dad at that time of day. So, I just walked around the city for a while. And then when I knocked on his parents' house, it was just a whirlwind of two and a half days of like we'd see like eight chateaus and eight wineries both days. Everyone was trying to give me wine. So I was like had cases of wine and dragging around. And I remember very little of that trip because I was so tired and, and they were just so gracious. You know, they were introducing me to everybody and sightseeing. And we, you know, we snuck in enough to last a week or two in, in those two days. And so it was, it was such a blur because I was, I was just exhausted. But that was thanks to Christoph's riding ahead and telling his parents that you better show him a good time. But uh, anyway, yeah, it was tragic that Christoph was killed on a motorcycle in uh, 2000. That's the only time I've been to Burgundy in the fall or in the winter time was, I guess it was in November that his funeral was. So I just flew over to, to go to the funeral and that was about, that was about the extent of it. So he was, you know, my closest French friend just because we had lived together and he was, he was very, very nice guy. I mean, I miss him still, but um, it's funny because I didn't even know he had ridden a motorcycle and. I surprisingly had just acquired a motorcycle habit myself. I was questioning whether I should keep riding or not because uh, he, he, you know, lost his life to it. And I couldn't decide that winter whether I should keep riding or not. Obviously, in the wintertime, I didn't ride very much anyway, so I had about six months to think about it. And I decided I would ride in honor of him instead of learn from his mistake. In a sense, it wasn't his mistake. It, was, it wasn't his fault. 
And then about a year later, I got into a motorcycle accident. And then I definitely gave it up because I said, wow, I got a second chance and he didn't. So that was the last, uh, last time I've been on a bike and made a vow I wasn't going to get back on one. You were at Calera for over a decade. How did it shift over that period of time? I mean, what did you see? Well, um, we were so isolated that the one thing that kept it quite interesting, I think, was there's a small group of people, and it was a group put together by Dick Graff, primarily from Shalom, and it was called the Small Winery Technical Society. And so there was a lot of really high-quality wineries involved in that little thing. And we we tried to meet every couple months, but, you know, we were pretty far apart. And so um, it was quite a good group of smart people. And there was it, the intention was to exchange information and, and learn from each other. It kind of turned into a little bit of a social thing. We'd always have a either go to a great restaurant or someone would cook and everybody would bring some wine and stuff. But there still was a, a, an intent to be very focused. And in the early years, it was quite that way. I remember uh, Dick's brother, Peter Watson Graff, did a super long kind of research on SO2 and what it's used for, how to use it, you know, just, just a very in-depth look at, at SO2, for example. So he set a pretty high standard that first time, I think. But, um, you know, all the Shalone wineries are in it. So that was uh, Acacia, Edna Valley, Carmenet. There was Sanford was in it. Uh, I met Ken Wright there first. Uh, first time I'd met Ken Wright was down in that group of people. And this must have been about 1980 when the group started. Jeffrey Patterson from uh, Mount Eden. And, and, you know, other peers of, of Josh and Dick Graffs were, um, but he wasn't really part of the group, was uh, Paul Draper from, from Ridge, you know, so he was kind of in the mix at the time. So even though we were very isolated physically, um, you know, we did get out a little bit, although there wasn't a lot of Napa Valley influence, although Carmine was up in that area, and, and of course, Acacia was um, in Carnero, so... There was some of that, but I mean, you know, whenever I tell somebody I was in the wine business, they all just assumed that I, I was part of the Napa Valley culture, which we were way far away and there wasn't much around us anyway. But in terms of evolution, like I said, you know, we started making some white wines um, in, I think, 83. We started um, making a little Chardonnay. We had planted some Chardonnay and we also planted Viognier in that year. We didn't make the Viognier till about 85. I think we made a Chenin Blanc one time. We also started purchasing, you know, other Pinot Noir. So we started making a Central Coast Pinot Noir just so we had some volume because the yields were so low there. I remember doing kind of just a spreadsheet to show the yields. And in my entire 14 years that I was there, our average yield off of the estate vineyards was a ton and a half. Our high water mark, I think, was 87. We got 2.2 tons to the acre or something. So, a ton and a half of yield um, over a 14-year period. So, it was very unsustainable, if you will. Water was always an issue. We tried to irrigate, but there wasn't enough water to even put on the plant. So, it was quite stressed. And uh, Josh's, you know, theory about limestone, he insisted on having limestone. And that's was what we found, or he found. But it was very infertile. And so, it it was part of the style, I think, of Clara was, you know, obviously there's limestone involved, there was whole cluster involved, but just those extremely low yields is going to influence your style as well. So I think if, if everyone made wines that yielded between a ton and a ton and a half, that would, that would have something to say about the style of the wine. So uh, it wasn't all just the site, although the, the yields were 
part of what the site delivered to us, you know. How were they trained? They were on cordon primarily, um, although I think it evolved into, into cane pruning. But unfortunately, because I don't want to say Josh didn't know anything about viticulture, but he did. But I think he, he was so desperate to get yield that he was actually bonusing um, our vineyard manager by how much he could produce. And so, while everyone else was trying to think about keeping yields under control, he, we were always trying to beef them up. And the plants just weren't ready for it, I don't think. We were always pushing them to the limit of what they could produce. And I think we would have been better off to try to prune them back and just but just keep the yields where they were comfortable for the plant rather than trying to push them because I think they just never, never got, you know, healthy. At least, you know, it took a while. We also had some trouble with oak root fungus. We were pretty lucky that... Um, uh, not by, I think, conscious effort, but most of the material that Josh got were planted on St. George rootstock when most people were using AXR1. And it was sort of the second rootstock that people were using at the time. And of course, it is resistant to phylloxera, whereas AXR1 turned out to not be. So a lot of people had to replant 20 years later or whatever. But I'm not sure phylloxera would have survived in those soils anyway. But there was one unrooted parcel, right? It could be that first acre. I don't remember. As far as I knew, they were all on St. George. I don't think they were unrooted. So he used to get Francois Frere, right? We started with Francois Frere, and, and Sarug was also one of the Coopers that we used at Calera. Um, you know, back in those early days, you didn't have nearly the choices that you have now. And, and I don't think we would have had the choices except most new world winemakers want to control everything. And so, you know, he says, oh, I really like your barrels, but I wish they weren't so toasty or vice versa. And so you're trying to tell them how to do their jobs. And I try to avoid that as much as I can, but it's harder and harder today when you order a barrel to just say, well, give me your house barrel here, what you're proud of. And they go, well, do you want toasted head? Do you want it three-year air dried? Do you, you know, what force do you want it from? It's like, I just want your barrels you're proud of, you know, and they don't almost, they almost don't know what it is anymore. So you kind of have to tell them what their style had been, although that's not necessarily true. But on that line, you know, I've always tried to sort of focus on Burgundian Coopers just with the thought that if they were trying to develop a style, they would have kind of tried it out with the varieties that we were using. And therefore it made more sense than to, you know, buy barrels from someone from Cognac or something like that. But um, in reality, the wood can come from same forests, and you could make barrels pretty similarly, although where they're dried, you know, how much rainfall it's going to get, etc., can certainly influence it. But um, it just, it was one way for me to weed out some of the some of the sales people that were coming from all over the place selling barrels. But Josh was making a little Viennier, right? Yeah, he was uh, one of the first people. Um, I think the first vintage we had of Viognier was uh, 85, and there was four people that same year that made Viognier, and those are the only ones that I know of in the country at the time. It was Joseph Phelps, Richie Creek, La Hota, and Calera. And so, you know, as far as I know, that was pretty much it outside of Congia, you know, obviously a little bit in the southern part of the Rhone, but there was probably couple hundred acres of Viognier in the world at the time and it not that it's exploded but certainly it's shown up in places that you wouldn't expect it you know Colorado and Virginia and stuff like that so yeah the the Viognier was quite interesting because it was so unique um, in fact that was the primary reason for a second trip to Burgundy well not quite true I went twice in 81 that's an, another little quick I jumped over there during harvest uh, 
at that time in 81. Now, I'm sorry, again, I'm not in chronological order, but Josh had a ticket to go to Burgundy, and he couldn't make it. And it was just after our harvest was done, and so he just handed it to me. And I had been there that year, so I kind of knew my way around, and it was a very quick trip. But it was really fortuitous because it was the only time I've been to Burgundy when I still there's still some fruit hanging. So I got to witness some harvest and production. Not for very long, but at least I got to see it. You know, a lot of people, because I bring up Dujac a lot, think that I really worked there a lot or something. And, you know, I, I did my day or two just helping out on visits, but I never did a vintage there. I really got to work. One of my favorite things that I was lucky to do was to break some rocks in Clos La Roche. <laughs> they, had, they were replanting a little section. They'd, you know, unearthed some big boulders that were too hard to really manhandle out so we just took sledgehammers and broke them into manageable pieces but i thought that was kind of romantic to have broken rocks in the clos la roche vineyard you know so i don't know that i have anything to do with it but some of those little rocks there were big rocks at one time as jock says reminds us the word roche in clos de la roche refers to rocks well, his name is clos la roche and it's it's right because they have Three, a few inches of uh, earth and rocks, rocks, rocks. Coming up after the break, Steve Dorner makes a big move. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Anyway, getting back to uh, my sort of next plan trip was in 88, so a bit of a stretch, but I, I did, of course, I went back to Burgundy, but then I also... Uh, went to the Rhone and, and started, you know, f focusing a little bit on Viognier in particular. We, we weren't making any Syrah or anything, but, you know, I went, went through uh, and tasted and primarily uh, spoke a lot with uh, George Vernet at the time, you know, and he was making quite a bit of Viognier. I think he might have been the largest producer of it at the time, but, you know, visited Gigal and um, some others and, and kind of tried to wrap my head around Viognier. Everybody's, you know, was struggling with the Viognier in the, in the vineyard. It just seemed to be kind of finicky to grow. I don't think we've ever had trouble with it ourselves here, but that was kind of a normal reaction was that it seemed kind of difficult. And now oh, maybe it was a clonal selection, you know, it was a mass, you know, it was just a mixed clone and some of them just were low producers or something. And the stuff we got was pretty good. But the, the story was that Josh smuggled some Viognier into the country. Most of the time it would die. He did it more than once. But he also sent some to um, Cornell to get cleaned up. And in fact, that's where our cuttings came from, because again, the stuff he kept for himself did die. 
So how did it go that you transitioned from California to Oregon? Well, again, um, after being there about 14 years, it seemed like the, the right time to move on. And, you know, there was, Josh and I had a few little friction issues. They weren't bad, but, you know, they were just, uh, we'd, we'd kind of outgrown each other's company, let's say, perhaps. Well, 14 years is a long time. It is a long time. He Josh had gone through a divorce, and I, I guess I could make it public now, or we can edit it out if you want, but um, he had actually put the winery on the market for a while and decided that he didn't really want to sell it, but I was trying to facilitate that sale, and when it was very close to happening, Josh changed his mind, and, and, sort of, and that's, that's kind of where I think I may have lost a little respect for Josh, and he kind of might have thought that I was uh, no longer a yes man because it, he, I was working for the sale and not for his wishes, but I was trying to be a good employee. That's what he put it on the market. So anyway, I was um, ready to see what the next chapter was. And I, again, because I hadn't chosen winemaking as a career, I, I wondered at that moment, you know, if that's what I still wanted to keep doing, you know, I had enjoyed a lot all my time at Claire. I mean, it was fun to build a brand and uh, learn a lot. And I, I ended up wearing lots of hats because, you know, we were so far removed that I was the plumber and the electrician and the ditch digger and got to dress up and go to fancy tastings and stuff. So I liked that diversity a lot. And I realized that in myself that I, I needed something like that. Um, and that I didn't want to just do one thing um, and do it all the time. I liked the seasonality of the wine business. You know, harvesting is not the same as bottling. It's, not the same as the middle of winter where you're just trying to get malolactic to go and a lot of waiting in that sense. But so I, I kind of identified a few things that I thought I wanted to do and, and I couldn't think of another career that allowed me to have that kind of diversity and seasonal variation and whatnot. So I wanted to maintain that and I, and I thought you can really only get that in a small company because, you know, if you're in a big place, you're going to be a cog in a wheel and you'd be the third analogist of the white wine program in some big production place or something like that. And because of all the time I'd spent with Pinot Noir, I, I wanted to keep going with Pinot Noir. I mean, basically, we didn't have a lot, but I had made it every year I was there. So, I, you know, my Pinot Noir production is solid through uh, from 1978. So, anyway, so those are the two things that I, I, I was kind of looking for. I didn't know it was Oregon that I would end up in. Again, a little bit like my first experience, I, I hadn't thought that far ahead to exactly what it was that I did want to look for. So I was looking everywhere. And coincidentally, Paul Gary was a big fan of Calera wines. And he had heard through the grapevine that um, I was leaving there. And, and he didn't know that I had been making the wines. I mean, he thought Josh was the winemaker. And, you know, Josh certainly often was considered to be the winemaker. He was the owner and he was a founder and it was his vision. And But, you know, he was off selling the wines and it's so much easier to just say, yeah, I'm the winemaker because everybody wants to talk to the winemaker. And so, it was, I, there was never a conflict with that, you know. I, I was happy to either take second fiddle or whatever, but uh, my title was winemaker, but it, it wasn't something that was widely known. And, you know, I was, I was the guy on the ground doing it, but whether I had the title or not didn't really matter. But anyway, the point was that um, Paul had never heard of me, but he loved the Claire Wines, but he heard that I was leaving and that, you know, I had that title. And so, he started courting me and, um, you know, it took me a long time to make up my mind actually, or, you know, a couple months at least, uh, two or three months. And I just didn't know as much about Oregon as I should have known, I think. 
I met David Lett a couple times, you know, and we, you know, Josh used to put on these tastings where he'd compare the Clara wines to Burgundy and to Oregon, and uh, and David was often the comparison, as as was sometimes Jacques Sace and even sometimes Aubert's wines. But anyway, you know, I just I just wasn't sure if it was for me or not. So I came up and interviewed with Paul and, and saw the facility, which was very rustic. Uh, you know, Kristen, when Paul bought it, was very kind of falling apart a little bit. You know, it was a small little pole building and the vines were on their own roots and wide spaced and kind of raggedy looking and stuff. But he, he fell in love with the site and bought it himself just earlier that year. Which would be what we'd call Marjorie's now. Uh, well, Marjorie's what's left, so you couldn't even see Marjorie from the road. There were other vineyards right around the winery that were uh, there that we pulled out eventually. But that first year, they were still there, and, you know, the whole place was just sort of small. That didn't bother me. I just wasn't sure that that's what I wanted to do, but... You just told them, I'm not going for any ice, but uh, <laughs> exactly. I don't mind small, but no. Exactly. No ice runs. No yeah. ice. Luckily, it was a cooler place. I don't think we needed it. And there was actually refrigeration there, which is, you know, in a lot of ways, it was a step up from what I'd come from in terms of you know, the facility. I mean, the whole time I was there, we, the, the bathroom we had was in a trailer. We didn't even have a indoor plumbing to speak of. So it was, it, it's changed a lot at Calera since, since then, you know, it's, it's quite nice. They have beautiful caves and everything now. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. But anyway, after I'd given it a lot of thought and realized, you know, that they could offer me all the things I was looking for, you know, diversity, small build a brand. Paul seemed like a really nice guy. He was asking for me. I mean, who doesn't want somebody that wants you, right? So, it wasn't too hard. I don't know what I was waiting for, to be honest, but I think the last time Paul called me, he was he was expecting me to say no because I'd been so reluctant and he was kind of getting desperate and said, you know, I'm, there's lots of people who want this job or I'm, I want you to give it a la last chance, but, you know, are you going to take it or not? And I said, no, I don't know, but uh, I'll give it a try. <laughs> and so, he uh, his reaction was, really? Like, he he really didn't expect me to to say yes. I must have really given him the cold shoulder or something. But when I got here, it was I don't, I don't know what I was thinking. It, I just loved it. It was easy. It was uh, everybody was so open about um, helping out. I mean, I was getting people coming out of the woodwork, just offering to help any way they could. I didn't expect that. You know, um, I didn't expect to get the cold shoulder, but I just didn't feel like people were going to go out of their way to welcome us and make us feel at home and, you know, do whatever they could for our success. And that attitude of, you know, all boats rise with the tide, they, they, it was genuine. It wasn't like, well, let's make this guy think he's welcome. And it, it wasn't phony. And, and, you know, that's one of the best things about our industry up here is there's this true commitment to each other and to raising all boats, you know. Um, you came up in 92. 92 vintage, which was a warm vintage uh, for for Oregon at the time. You know, it was pretty warm, so it was good transition vintage. And again, at, at when I had left Claire, I think we were about 20,000 cases of wine, and the first vintage at Kristen was 2,000 cases. And there was no wine to sell. So, you know, once once harvest was done in, in uh, 92, I, I had the whole winter to go visit people. And, you know, it was just, it, it seemed like a vacation in comparison to what I was doing. Not that 20,000 is is undoable it just it was a whole different ball game and not having any of the wines in bottle to worry about and stuff and try to sell it it, it seemed like i had a year off you know but that first finish was kind of warm i think i spent the whole budget that 
Paul had given me on on our press and a deep stammer and and barrels. So the fermenters were pretty sparse at the time. So most of the fermentations were done in um, very small little plastic tanks. But it, I think in retrospect, it was just lucky because um, it was a hot vintage and those those little fermenters actually kept the wine, I think, from being too extracted because they were smaller and they didn't get as warm. Perhaps we didn't have um, a way to chill them as easily. There was a chilling system in sort of the stainless tanks, but we weren't really using them much. I think we did actually use a semi-closed top fermenter for part of it just because we didn't have enough room for stuff. But we started buying some more fermenters in subsequent years, but that first year was pretty small, but we did um, have some nice equipment, you know, so it, it was a totally different experience, second second job in terms of enjoying my first year, you know, which was a little bit challenging in California and, and was pretty easy up here. I mean, I, I felt like even though physically we were still kind of out in the middle of nowhere, we were so much more involved in the community that it felt really good. And, and I, again, I loved putting the brand together and, and being the electrician and didn't even need to as much here because we were not quite as isolated as we had been down in California, but there was just nobody to call down there in terms of servicemen and stuff. So I just got to know how to work on stuff and enjoy that part of it. And the vineyard had been planted in 82. So you had about 10 year old vines. Just in the Marjorie, that that vineyard, um, I think it was all planted in 82, but we, like, as I mentioned, we tore out most of the vines that were there. We ordered plants that year in 92, so the what's now like the Louise and, and the Viognier and, and the Chardonnay that we have, our Pinot Gris as well, were all planted in 93. So once the plants had been ordered, we finally got them. So Mark Feltz, our vineyard manager at the time, had um, torn out those plants. And so he spent his first year, you know, getting ready for planting. And then we had to kind of recover Marjorie because it had been abandoned, I believe. Um, it was planted 10 years before, but I don't think that it had been harvested for a while. There really wasn't much of a trail system and there was a lot of poison oak and blackberries, uh, very wide spaced, you know, 12 foot wide rows, six feet between the plants. That's kind of how they were doing it back then. We had to farm that for a couple years before we really got our first crop off of it even though it was 10 years old we did get a very very tiny amount of fruit in 93 and paul wanted to write off the vintage so we uh technically made a marjorie vineyard that year um it never was commercially available and uh, there wasn't even enough to fill a barrel so we topped it up with something else and uh, called it marjorie but it was um was mostly something in fact i think it was mostly seven springs and a little bit of marjorie in that in that one barrel and we just hand wrote on the labels Marjorie on it. I don't think anybody ever bothered to find out if we made wine that year, but he just wanted something that he could say that we uh, we had some production. So anyway, starting in 94, that vineyard started to produce. And then the vineyards that we had planted, uh, Louise, uh, we released in 96. So we kind of went every two years with one of the estate vineyards. Anyway, we started planting with um, you know rootstock for one thing. And we had we used three different rootstocks, so 101, 14, 3309, and riparia. And one of the things that we were told, and, and I kind of felt, although 92 was a warm vintage by comparison to a lot of the other vintages in the 90s, was, you know, the, the key to success was to get things to ripen as quickly and early as you could. So we kind of went out of our way to do what we thought we could to uh, accelerate ripening. Again, this is in a different era. 
So we had pretty tight spacing. You know, we went with about 2,300 vines to the acre, which for Oregon was pretty dense. Certainly, even today, 2,300 vines to the acre is pretty, pretty dense. So we, we kind of went as tight as we could with between the row tractor versus a straddling tractor. Um, so our rows are like five foot eight, I think. Um, and, and we had about a meter between the plants, which in that dimension was kind of matches burgundy. But the canopy was pretty tall for having row spacing that, that tight. Again, we're just trying to maximize leaf area. Um, most of the rootstocks we were, were quite restricted, especially riparia, you know, it accelerates the ripening quite a bit. I didn't know that. And that's its main, I mean, that, that one especially seems to be quite a bit earlier than the other. So I think that has more to do with ripening than the clone does. But, you know, if you fast forwarded to this era, you know, we're, we're planting more vineyards now and we're, we're loosening up the density and, and not, not worrying about the accelerated ripening, for example. Like Eileen, when we bought that property in 95, I believe, it was, you know, it topped out about 750 feet and, and we only planted a portion of it and, until just recently. In fact, it's still not completely planted and the stuff that's not planted is the highest elevation stuff because we were afraid that that was too high. 750 feet, oh my gosh, it's never going to get ripe up there, you know. So that whole thing has turned around. I think high vineyards now have a very good potential for getting ripe and maybe even better than lower stuff just because it, it might be a little cooler up there or later anyway and that should get you into a cooler part of the season when ripening happens so so there's a different way of thinking than w what we were but so that's kind of how we developed the vineyards and we were quite adamant about keeping the yields really low and did a lot of thinning it's kind of sad in a way that at that density you know and and trying to keep low yields you're you've got canes without fruit on it, which just doesn't seem balanced to me, you know. So I think that we're we're trying to get to a point where, you know, we don't have quite as many buds and, and maybe not have to uh, do that much thinning, you know. Where exactly in the Willamette Valley was the property? So, Kristen, it's kind of in the middle of the Yola Amity Hills AVA now. It wasn't an AVA then. And that in itself is about midway in the entire Willamette Valley. We're we're kind of at the southern part of the northern half of the Willamette Valley. There's 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 some vineyards and some wineries that are south of us in the valley, but um, not much. Um, we are on the east side of of the uh, hills, uh, so we kind of face the morning sun. So, are you near the Van Duzer corridor? Or? We're not as close as some of the others, but we are directly opposite there. So it, it's sort of the west side of our hills gets the brunt of it. It kind of comes, you know, screaming through that, that gap and then splits north and south. So that cold air kind of comes through. Right, exactly. That's a big feature of the entire Willamette Valley, but uh, there are some sites that are more influenced by it than others. Um, conversely, you know, when that's the normal prevailing wind is, is from the west. But um, when we occasionally have an opposite scenario set up, there's a high pressure system, say, over eastern Washington or, or Idaho, uh, occasionally you get this east wind. And uh, just the opposite, the Columbia Gorge acts as the funnel instead of the Van Duzer Corridor. So you've got this hot, dry wind coming from the opposite direction. And those are the conditions, I think, uh, from 03 that were pretty severe um it was it lasted for weeks and you know i think that in that year there was a lot more dehydration than we're used to um 
and we actually added a little irrigation after that vintage to the, where we identified some spots that could have benefited from it. So we don't have to use it every year, but we at least have it in those spots that the sh soil was very shallow. And um, we kind of learned the hard way that we should have put that in those places when we planted versus waiting. Does a lot of wind, you know, help with the prevention of mildew or? Yeah, the wind will um, definitely dry things out. And so that, you know, humidity is what a lot of diseases like. The uh, humidity is not very high out here in general. And so uh, even after a rain or something, you know, if you get that wind coming in pretty good, it'll, it'll dry things out, especially during harvest. You know, um, I've, with one exception, I've never harvested wet fruit because it's the best place to dry the fruit out is out on the vine. You know, you've got it separated and hanging and it's like a clothesline and any kind of little breeze doesn't take long to dry it out. So we're lucky enough that we almost always have a little break, even if it's in a wet season uh, where there's going to be a little bit of a drying period. Even in uh, 13, when we had like seven inches in 10 days, you know, we, we did have to pick pretty quickly after that rain, but we still at least got the fruit dry. So it does help a lot with, with that effect of drying it out. But yeah, it just keeps, keep things cleaner. You know, the um, diseases like, like moisture. So what do you see for soil type for your set of vineyards? Well, we're primarily volcanic. We have no kind of old marine sediments on the property. There are some of those on, on the west side of the old hills because it kind of got tilted up, you know, on the west side. So some of the old marine layer that's under everything in the Willamette Valley was re-exposed over there. But on our side, it's, um, it's all volcanic, and it's really just a question of depth of how Jory versus Witzel, those are kind of the two extremes. We do have some sedimentary soils, but they're from the Missoula floods. They're not marine sediments. They're, they're from east of us that came more recently through the last ice age, you know, when there was some flooding, huge amounts of water came rushing down the Columbia Gorge and flooded the Willamette Valley and deposited a lot of waterborne silts and stuff. On our site, it's it's uh, the lower altitude vineyards. Primarily, our Pinot Gris has some of the old sedimentary soils, but as you move further up the hill, you know, it pretty soon uh, goes exclusively to volcanic. So there's kind of a line on our vineyard that I kind of call the lakefront that would have been a lake back when those floods were happening. And it wasn't a flood; it probably happened hundreds of times. But we think that that point is the high water mark because there's no no none of that sedimentary soil above that point. How do you think the volcanic affects the flavor profile? Well, there's there's some clay in it that I think helps to hold water a little bit better than some of the marine soils. Um, they're very deep soils, some of those marine sediments, but they don't hold as much water, even though they're deeper, you know. So it kind of depends on the season, if you will, or which, which one gives you the best idea, you know, the best fruit. But I think I think of how it affects the, the in terms of how much water there is and therefore when it ripens, you know. And so you've got the Jory version of volcanic, which is quite deep, and therefore it holds more water naturally. We're not talking about irrigation right now, so I'm assuming we're talking dry farming. So those, if you were to pick them all at the same time, say you had a Jory soil and say a shallower volcanic soil and sedimentary soil, if you pick them all at the same time, the sedimentary soil would probably be a little bit riper, and the and the uh, deep volcanic soils would wouldn't be so ripe. So, 
you don't have to pick them on the same day. So it's, it's a bit of a theoretical thing anyway, but I think you get kind of those um, strawberry, lighter, redder fruits in the, in the soils that have more moisture. But if you waited long enough, you could move that into sort of the darker fruits, you know, and vice versa, you get kind of the darker fruit or more rustic things in the, in the soils that are dried out a little faster. But we all try to pick at the ripening that we want, and you don't have to pick them on the same day. The cold, wet vintages might have an, there might be an advantage in those years to be on sedimentary soils because they're going to ripen a little bit earlier and faster. So I like to think which one makes the best one is very dependent on the season. You know, if you have a very hot early season, then maybe some of the deep uh, volcanic soils that hold more water are going to have the advantage. And vice versa, if you have a cold, wet year, you, you do want to accelerate ripening, and so you're better off to have a very well-drained soil that is, is maybe going to promote ripeness, and you might get it off um, before the season ends. And so it, it's not one's better than the other. It, it's just they're both useful in, in a changing climate, especially when we get all these extremes. Because you've had some ups and downs in terms of vintages. Some have been really hot, and some have been very rainy. Yes. So you uh, in the 90s, as I mentioned earlier, you could say that the name of the game was to get things to ripen as soon as they could. So I feel like the 90s was typical Oregon vintages. And then the 2000s came along and they were mostly hot. Um, and I think of that as the global warming vintages, that whole decade. 2010 was the latest vintage that we'd ever seen until 2011, which is even later and cooler. That was the coolest one on record. And then just, you know, Four years later, 2015, um, we had the very hottest, earliest vintage all within that time frame. We also had the wettest vintage thrown in there. So we had the three extreme vintages in four years. And, and so and so now we have to sort of just learn how to adapt better. So I think that you make a different style in, in one of those years, definitely. Um, and there is vintage variation, but uh, we're not afraid of it. I, I think I may have been when I first came here, you know, thought of rain was just, you know, not part of what we had to think about. And it was very scary at first, but I've kind of learned to embrace it now. And in fact, I often prefer the cooler vintages and the late vintages. And having some water at the right time is a blessing often. You know, 13 would have been the vintage I would have thought that I wouldn't ask for again, and I still may not ask for it. But after having weathered, no pun intended, that vintage, I feel like we can pretty much handle anything. Because if ever there was going to be a, a vintage that was going to kind of wipe us out, that, that should have been it. But the wines turned out quite nice, and the water didn't wash us away, so to speak, you know. Even though that was way more water, more than twice as much as we'd ever seen before, at least during harvest, you know. For us, it hit us right smack in the middle of harvesting. So uh, we had a lot more difference between, say, La Louise Vineyard and the Eileen Vineyard that year, just because they normally might be a week to 10 days of difference in ripening, but we just wait that week or 10 days and they kind of both reach the same maturity level. But in 13, you know, the Louise mostly was harvested before any of that tropical storm rain. And Eileen had to weather almost all of it. So stylistically, there was a lot of separation between those vineyards that year that we don't get in a normal year because we kind of just get to wait, you know. What should I understand is the differences? I mean, you've explained a little bit about the site, but in terms of the wines between Louise, Eileen, Marjorie's, Jesse, which are all Pinot. 
Oh, right. They're all Pinot. They're all other than Marjorie being planted in a different format. And there was less clonal diversity in Marjorie to begin with, but we've now got that same clonal diversity. Most of the differences are subtle, admittedly. That's why it was kind of fun. And as I mentioned in 13, to have such a wide difference between them because you don't get that all the time. And even amongst ourselves, uh, we don't always, we're not always able to pick them out in a blind tasting. I think there's more difference between the same vineyard from vintage to vintage, even than there is between the vineyards in the same vintage. But that being said, um, Louise does tend to ripen a little earlier, so it, it can it can be sort of the most extracted. But there's also that little tiny piece of it in the lower part that's on the sedimentary flood soil that um, might be the reason for that you know it, it could it could explain a little bit of that rusticity that that sometimes gets conversely the eileen which is higher up and does tend to um, be a little bit later ripening can often um, just have a little bit more red red fruited and, and very focused fruit i think in the, in the eileen jesse is sort of between those two in terms of elevation and ripening dates and stuff it's it's our steepest site um it's also got the most maybe soil diversity between very deep and very shallow and so you know that that may also contribute to its sort of maybe complexity i I always find that there's a little bit of a tiny floral influence in jesse which i don't find in the others as much and it's some kind of a blue flower i I think but um, not everybody gets it And, and like i said i can't always get it either it's the one that stands out for me when i taste them i mean there's I'm not saying that they taste the same. I'm just saying that the Jesse seems a little bit more off to one side than the other three. It's literally off to one side. It's (laughs) separated by a ravine. (laughs) But yeah, you know, when people ask what's your favorite, it's it's hard to uh, choose because it depends on the vintage and when you're trying them and how they're evolving. Often it's Jesse, however, but you know, when... and I tease people and say, well, what's your favorite child? And then people come back at me and say, well, that's easy. My, I like my son today and I like my daughter yesterday. And that's kind of the way it is with the vineyards too. You know, it's, uh, we, we might have a general leaning towards one or the other, but then we're surprised and, and like one that we don't like as much that year or that particular moment. So I really feel like, you know, they're all pretty equal in terms of their general quality. And it's just kind of a personal preference of what what you're looking for, perhaps. And then Marjorie is, is again, the anomaly in a sense, just because of it had um, a lot more old vines and it was own-rooted and very wide-spaced. But in terms of the site itself, I think that it's, again, it's, um, it's below Eileen, but not by a lot. And, and it's, it's up a little bit higher than, than Jesse and a little bit higher than Louise. So as time moves forward, I, I fully expect that's going to be, again, um, one of our favorite vineyards because um, I, I think that with global warming we're gonna we're gonna want some stuff that's a little bit later and stuff like that. So, one of the things that you've kind of shifted from the protocol you were doing at Calera is you've dialed back the whole cluster on the Pinot Sum at Christum. So whereas before you might have been doing 100% whole cluster, you typically do about 50% on the single vineyard Pinots for Christum, right? Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't I didn't talk about that much, but yeah, in the earlier years I did quite a bit of experimenting again earlier years here at at, at Christum and starting in 92, you know, I did a lot of n- no whole cluster, 50% whole cluster, 100% whole cluster trying to just figure out if it worked as well here as it 
did for me down there. And I think I mentioned earlier that uh, part of the issue may have been we didn't have that great of a destemmer. I don't know if that's true or not, but I, if I had ever gone back there, it would have been fun to try a more modern destemmer to uh, compare and see if, if, in fact, I may have preferred even a little less whole cluster than I was using at the time. I mean, the clear ones are pretty rustic, and they take a long time to come around. So anyway, having done that quite a bit, I just felt like the 100% whole cluster was just pushing it too far. Uh, the wines... I think they would still have made really interesting and, and great wines, but uh, from a commercial standpoint, I think they just wouldn't have been accessible enough for the average consumer to get behind, especially when you're trying to build a brand. And, you know, most people were drinking the wines on their way home from the liquor store. They weren't giving them much time to age. Ironically, you know, if I had the average consumer in the cellar and we're doing a barrel tasting on those three, say, uh, different whole cluster components, I'd say 60-70% of the population liked the destemmed completely the most. It's fruitier, it's more developed, it's, you know, who doesn't like fruit? And so they, they, they really were attracted to that kind of readiness in the cellar. But you'd get some French people in there and they tended to go for the 100% whole cluster because the wine's not supposed to be drinkable when, or not undrinkable. I mean, the wine's not ready when it's in the barrel and Yes, it, it needs some time, but there might be more complexity there, and, and they could relate to that. You know, it was, it was tighter, uh, more preserved, a little backwards. So I kind of went for that middle ground. I like whole clusters a lot, but I also, you know, don't age my wines long enough on, in general. And so I, I just think that that middle area gives me what I'm looking for in terms of the dynamics of the fermentation without it being overly stemmy. You know, the whole cluster use is not just the flavors of the stems. Um, that's uh, one of the important factors to, to think about. But I also think that there is a role in the rate of fermentation. Pinot Noir is a variety that likes to ferment very fast. And so almost everything I do at harvest is to slow down that fermentation. It's one of the reasons we use native yeast. Um, if we're going to acidify, we do it very, very early, like day one try to get the pH down first to make it harder for the fermentation to speed through. If we're going to shaptalize, we do it late. In fact, we'll even take whatever the total amount is and split it into three parts and, and add the sugar over three different days near the end to try to, again, get as much... To extend the ferment. Extend fermentation time. It just likes to ferment quickly. It also likes to spoil quickly. It's, it, everybody likes Pinot Noir, including the organisms, you know. So the whole clusters, uh, if you think about where the yeast are, they're in the environment outside of the berry there. They could be on the skin and stuff, but they're not inside the grape. And so as long as that, that grape is intact and it's attached to the stem, it, fermentation doesn't really begin on that grape until it's broken open. And so it's a way to kind of feed the yeast over the course of many weeks instead of having it all available up front. And even even good destemmers that'll give you a lot of whole berries. If the stem's pulled out, that's that's a little. It's not as easy as if it's crushed, but there's still a little bit more access to the grape going through that hole than if if the stem were left on. So it's it's the best way to get intact fruit into the fermenter. So that's that's the other reason that I like it. But I think at 100% whole cluster, there's just the stem component can be a little too much. You know, it's just a lot of extraction. I do think that the stem tannins, though, are different than seed tannins and 
barrel tannins and skin tannins. So there may be more total tannin, but it's a different one. And I think it kind of coats your mouth differently. And, and if they uh, work well, um, you get a spiciness, almost a clovey cinnamon kind of thing. When they don't work so well, then that's when you get into that sort of vegetal, stemmy, um, awkward phase where um, it's, it's, a, it's a disadvantage, you know. So it's kind of a fine line. Most of the time, even though the goal is 50%, the wines as, as they're bottled end up being less than that because for one reason or another, there was a reason to sort of use less whole clusters. If you have a poor set and you hold up a stem and there's only two-thirds of the berries that there might be in another year, obviously there's more stem for the amount of solids and juice that you have than if, if it were a normal set and you had a lot of grapes on there. Uh, in 13, for example, I cut back pretty much across the board, uh, at least on the stuff that had gotten rained on, not because I didn't think the stems were right, but because uh, there was such a high disease pressure year that, uh, again, the yeast are not the only things that are on the surface of things. And so there was a lot of rots and mildews and stuff that were just, you know, a problem. And I just felt like if I used as many stems as I normally would, I'm just adding to the inoculum of those bad guys. So I, I more or less cut it back about to about 35% in, on average, which is for me quite a bit less than I normally use. But every year we, um, I, I hate having two fermenters side by side without doing something to them. So if, if say I have two fermenters that are otherwise identical, usually one will be 65% whole and the other be 35% whole. So my average is 50, but we've got lots of lots in the cellar that are a whole range of different things. So when we put the buns together, we can kind of fool around with the extraction in a way just by which barrels we choose and stuff like that. So that's the primary reason why I didn't didn't go with a hundred percent. Is it and, and we often have a fermenter or two that is a hundred percent and sometimes those are delicious, you know. It's it's not it's not unheard of. It's not like a hundred percent can't make some delicious wines. Uh, I just felt like um it it's not for your faint of heart kind of it's funny, you know, a lot of people uh, try to base their whole cluster use on what they look like um, or how they taste. Um, you know, I've heard lots of different arguments and I've had a hard time making any correlation. I mean, if I were to base how many whole clusters to use based on how they tasted, I wouldn't use any because I've never tasted a stem that I like, you know. And other times, you know, they can be pretty fluorescent green and still work and vice versa. The ones that look like they're pretty lignified and they're going to be ideal, sometimes they can taste kind of stemmy so it's it's kind of hard I, i'm i don't know if it's just intuitive or uh, i've gotten lucky or what but we we seem to just get pretty good results when we're in that middle range i think you you do have to kind of balance the tannic structure with just the style of the wine so in the in a vintage that's going to give you bigger more alcoholic even just more of everything then they probably can handle a little bit more of the stem component than if you're going to have kind of a lighter, more delicate vintage. But it's interesting because the stems to me, especially as they age a little bit, tend to provide what I call perfume. You know, they're, they're aromatic. I think that that is something that I was especially attracted to in the Dujac wines is, is they had this perfume that to me was very identifiable as, as Dujac. You know, it was their signature and, and they're 100%. So I, I certainly you know, have no illusion that 100% whole cluster can make delicious wines. You got in on 
a period at Calero where they were, were taking inspiration from Dujac and DRC about stems. But then stems kind of got really unpopular for a long time in California and then to some degree in Oregon. Like there's some prominent Oregon winemakers who never use stems. Right. And now the, the fashion has swung back the other way where a lot of people are interested in stems. Yes. But I feel like you saw that whole sweep, that kind of whole pendulum swing and you were here using stems and I bet a lot of people are like, I don't believe Irie used stems. Mark Vlasic didn't use stems. Right. Ken, Ken Wright hasn't used stems. You know, there's a lot of people that don't. I mean, that, like you said, I think that was the norm. And, and again, even going back further on other red varieties, most of them had been de-stemmed, you know, traditionally. But, you know, there's more than one way to do anything, and it's not a right or a wrong. I mean, I think that they are styled differently a little bit with, with stems, but um, it has it has become quite popular. And, and you know, I've always, um, again, because of the bias that I attained when I first started in the business, um, I'm always trying to do things that I feel like they've done for historically. I have to rephrase that a little bit in the modern era because of the natural wine movement. Um, we will add acid if necessary. We will shoptalize if necessary. I do use SO2. We use barrels and not amphora and et cetera. But, you know, were they, were they picking off the stems by hand before they had mechanization historically? I, I don't think so. I think they probably used a lot of whole clusters, you know, and were they inoculating with yeast? Hundreds of years ago, I mean, Louis Pasteur only lived in the 1850s, and he was the first person that discovered the existence of yeast, you know, um, or I should say the use of yeast in winemaking. They didn't know what the process was. That's very, very recent when you think of wine in terms of its history. So now I have to modify my winemaking and say it's, it's based on winemaking that's been done for hundreds of years, not, not thousands of years. Well, as an example, you don't do cold soak because right. you feel like that's not really the old school way. Exactly. Exactly. I think that there was plenty of lots that were made in cold seasons that were cold soaked by accident. In fact, I, I believe that Guy Akkad, he was kind of a consultant in Burgundy, kind of um, liked some of those wines and he started doing it intentionally versus it just happening because, you know, the, it was a cold, cold harvest and things took a long time to get started. He he started sort of identifying that, wow, these are some nice wines. I think Henry Jair was the guy that practiced that quite a bit, you know, and so that became the standard, and it's surprising how many people do do it. Um, not everybody, but I've tried it a few times, but maybe because I'm not a big believer, it hasn't tasted to me as well. But, you know, sometimes your bias just interferes with your experimentation, even though you try to do a very accurate job on that. But um, the few times that I've tried it, I just didn't, see what it brought to the table, you know? I think if, if you want to go down that rabbit hole, the real difference is, is about the microbial activity that's going on. Because, you know, all reactions are temperature sensitive. So, if you cool down the, the soaking, it's going to take longer to get that extraction. Um, so, you have to let it sit there for a longer period of time. Versus a little bit warmer temperatures, you're going to get the same extraction you would at the colder temperatures, even because it's a little warmer, it's going to happen a little faster. So even though it may not be sitting there for quite as long, you're probably going to have the same amount of stuff that you're trying to get out of the skins and seeds and, and stems and stuff. But at the slightly warmer temperatures, 
what's going on microbiologically is is definitely going to be accelerated whereas you've kind of frozen not not literally frozen but you've kind of stopped the mi microorganisms in their feet by having it in the low 40s or high 30s or something um, there's not going to be a lot of activity so i think the way it's it's used by some people anyway is you know they keep it very cold and then they inoculate and warm it up right away so that the saccharomyces the wine yeast are the only things that really have a chance to really get going. So they really favor the yeast, the, the wine yeast, by raising the temperature quickly and by putting the yeast in there and kicking off fermentation right away. So even though there may have been a week where the fruit was just sitting, there wasn't much activity happening. Whereas in my case, say I'm in the low 50s or something, the microorganisms, and they're not all, in fact, there's very few wine yeast in it at that moment, um, can can survive and actually metabolize some things. And, and often that's VA, which is what everybody doesn't want. I'm not really afraid of it at that stage anyway, because most of that's going to get blown off during the fermentation. Because you're using open top. We're using open top fermenters, and you've got two or three weeks of CO2 pushing all those things away, usually. But whatever little bit might be remaining, it's not just VA that they metabolize, they're doing other things. And I think it adds a little bit of complexity to the wine, a little bit of earthiness, a little bit of something else, and versus having a monoculture in there. And, and even with the wine yeast, that's why I don't inoculate them. I'm hoping to get multiple strains and different things going on to, to gain some complexity, you know. So that's one of the reasons that I'm not a big fan of the cold soak is that I don't I don't want to get rid of that microflora that is contributing, hopefully, in a, in a positive way. It's riskier, perhaps. I mean, most people who try whole clusters, <laughs> for some reason, there seems to be a lot more volatility in those tanks in there when they're early. Is that true? Seems like it, you know, and so it's hard, to, it's hard to just sit there and let it happen and have faith that it's going to clean up, you know. You think that's because of the pH? Like, do you think that's because of the potassium drop with the clusters? Well, there's certainly a phenomenon with whole clusters. That's another negative. Um, there's no doubt that your pH is very uh, will rise a lot if you don't do something to mitigate it because of, like you mentioned, the potassium that's in the stems. That certainly could be. I, I said whole clusters, which is also true, but I, I feel like there's a little bit more uh, volatility when you're not doing a cold soak because it's obviously there's stuff in there trying to grow at those temperatures. And that's what I think a lot of people have a really hard time leaving it alone whereas i've sort of so used to it that it's it's kind of part of what the fermentation is it's just like oftentimes you'll get a point at which you might get a little bit of reduction in in a fermenter and we don't encourage it or like it but we don't uh, prophylactically feed any of our fermenters and if if we get a little bit of that that's when we might put in a little bit of um, nutrient for the yeast or something um Normally, like in the last couple of years, we've had over 100 different fermenters, and we may have fed four or five of them, and it's based just on how they smell a little bit. But often those things, if it's not, if it's not overpowering and depending on the stage at the fermentation, we, we won't do anything. We'll just let it go through that phase because I know most of the time they'll fix themselves. So I try not to react to stuff, um, whereas I think a lot of winemakers want to react. They're, that's what they feel their job is, is to, you know, fix it when it starts to break. And certainly I have a threshold where I, I need to do that as well, but I think it's just a little bit broader, and, I, and I, I try not to react unless it's really bugging me. And I guess that's everybody's 
motto. It's just, where's your threshold? One of the things that we had to learn early on about Pinot Noir that's different from most red varieties is it's very fragile. And so when we've done things, often we felt in retrospect that it, it was a mistake. And often if you just leave it alone, it'll come around. One of the biggest things um, I learned was about racking. I mean, you know, everyone racks their Cabernets every three or four months, you know, and we were not doing it that frequently, but we were moving it around and we started doing experiments with, you know, no racking, one racking, two rackings, etc. And less was more. We, we got more interesting wines when we left them alone because it's a fragile, it's a fragile grape. You know, it likes to, likes to oxidize and it likes, it, you know, it doesn't take handling well, I don't think. And so that's always in the back of my mind is how do we minimize what we're doing with, with you know, you want to fix something, but you also uh, am trying to make the wine as pure as you can. Another example was the 98 vintage. You know, I mentioned to you off mic that I love 99 and 98 was a little bit uh, less, not my favorite vintage when, when I was making it. It was a very short growing season. It was hot, low yield. I think we only had about 85 days of hang time. So uh, philosophically, I already didn't like the vintage from the get-go because, you know, we had to pick be because it was quite ripe. And then we had huge amounts of sulfite for us in the in the cellar. So we tried all kinds of things to get rid of it. We used copper, of course. We used silver, which you're not supposed to use. Uh, it does the same thing, copper, but we're trying it out. We used pure oxygen, try to bubble it through. We did some racking, get it off the leaves. And we left some alone, you know, as a control. I figured, well, we got to do something. Let's try to learn something. And again, what I learned was the stuff that we hadn't done anything to turned out in the end to be pretty good. And certainly the wines showed nicely, even though we had manipulated a lot of them quite a bit, that vintage with various things, because we had a pretty pervasive reduction issue. Wines don't taste reduced now, um, but I don't believe it was because of most of the treatments we use, they just were at that stage and they tended to, uh, they, they came around. So maybe it's just based on experience and I, I, I can get unlucky too and leave something alone and have it come back to bite me. But so far we've been pretty lucky. You know, you make Riesling, Pinot Gris and Chardonnay. And so what have your experiences been with those diverse white grapes? Well, when we first moved up there, of course, um, we were told <laughs> by a very nice industry that was very uh, helpful to us that Pinot Gris was the white grape of Oregon and that we would be foolish not to try some Pinot Gris. And so we listened to them primarily. And I had never made it before. I hadn't got a lot of experience with it. Hadn't had any that blew me away, to be honest. But um, we planted about five acres of Pinot Gris when we first got here. Um, Simultaneously, we planted quite a bit of Chardonnay, too, and also the Viognier. We planted all three of those varieties. No Riesling back then. Um, the Pinot Gris took me a little while to really warm up to it. You know, it always had a little bit of an edge to it that was something I wasn't as familiar with. But I, over time, I, I learned to enjoy it and embrace it. And I think it is very versatile, like like it's... You know, Pinot Noir is very versatile. It goes with a lot of stuff. But I, I still have a little bit of a bias of, against it, I guess, uh, unfortunately. It just, it, it, again, I, I don't think I've had any that have just totally turned my head. And, you know, I haven't had one of those memorable moments where, oh, man, if 
I could only make Pinot Gris like that, you know. But still, it 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 was um, for the time you couldn't get people to try the Chardonnay. Sometimes, I mean, we had a really hard time convincing people that Chardonnay was worth trying from Oregon, and so we actually uh, tore out almost all of our Chardonnay. We used to make three different ones in the '90s. We we had a uh, an estate. It was actually named after my grandmother at the time, and then we had one we called Mount Hood, which was the counterpart to the Mount Jefferson Pinot Noir. And then we had a Salilo vineyard, a vineyard designate, which was actually the only vineyard designate that we had been made up until recent times um, that we didn't grow. And that was from the Columbia Gorge, a Salilo vineyard. Quite interesting, very, very good Chardonnay, I think. But when we decided to cut back, you know, it didn't make sense for us to tear out all of our fruit and, and keep buying Chardonnay. So we unfortunately got rid of the purchased fruit first and even grafted away most of ours. So we only kept a half an acre of Chardonnay, and we're just again recently planting more, so that we're we're going to get back into the Chardonnay game a little bit more than we have been. So uh, I'm looking forward to um, having the opportunity to kind of uh, join the rest of the valley with the enthusiasm for the Chardonnay, you know. And then of course the Viognier, um, as I maybe alluded to earlier, uh, I was against even planting to begin with, but um, it's actually turned out quite nice, and I now prefer it over the stuff I think I was making in California. And I mean, I don't mean to pat myself on the back, but I prefer it to most Viognier's. Just, I think a cooler climate for that variety is is really what it needs. Um, I think it's a tough variety in a lot of ways because it's kind of a paradox. You know, it's got this very aromatic, uh, floral, almost feels like it's going to taste light. And yet it's got this kind of big, viscous, body that you don't expect from having smelled it so it's it's a bit of a, a contradiction and you know the aromas don't remind you of the flavors i mean now now that we're kind of had more of them and we're kind of used to expecting the viognier to taste like it will because of our memory but um if you'd never tried it before you wouldn't expect to it to taste like it does after smelling it but so many of them are i think kind of over the top with that you know mouthfeel it's just so massive you know so I've always felt that it's a little bit harder to match with food and things like that. You can pick it earlier, which isn't a bad idea, but it doesn't have varietal character until it's kind of late in the in the bricks ripening cycle anyway. So the one vintage that I think that didn't get ripe was the 2011, and we made a wine out of it, and it was successful, and people loved it. It did not taste like Viognier. It just had no varietal character. It was almost more like Chablis or something. It had lots of acidity and you know was bright and so you know doesn't sound like Viognier <laughs> and so uh, it was kind of a surprise and it even made me wonder if we shouldn't make it in that style. I can imagine that being really popular actually. It was but the people that liked that didn't like Viognier and so it's possible to do and maybe that's maybe that's the way some Viognier should be but it also is so unvarietal or unclassically varietal. I mean, how can it be unvarietal even though it's from that variety, you know? So I, I kind of feel like, you know, I've gone back to thinking, well, if it says Viognier, it ought to taste like Viognier. And so we've been making it where it, it gets ripe. But I think the advantage of having it a little bit in a cooler spot compared to where it's often grown is that you you just have a little bit more time to to nail it when it finally tastes like Viognier to pick it right away. And the warmer it is, the faster that 
that curve is moving and it's it's harder to to pick it you know one day makes a big difference and three days makes a huge difference and so um if it's if it's ripening a little bit more slowly you, you just have a little bit better chance of, of getting it when it's has varietal character but it hasn't gone over the top but even here it's tricky i'd say a good percentage of our viognets over the last 20 plus years have have been over 14 percent alcohol so knowing that that's not my goal it's just just that's where they they seem to get ripe is that the highest alcohol wine you make no there's been some hot finishes where the pinots have gotten over 14 as well you know most finishes where we're i'd say where we hover around 13 five well in the cooler vintages, we can we can increase the alcohol to that level. So, in that sense, they they often get to that point. But you know, I'd say most of the wines that we've made are between thirteen five and fourteen, actually. And and it's um, but there have been certain certain vintages where you know they're between fourteen and fourteen and a half. You know, I I've made some Zinfandels in California that were fifteen seven, right, right, and right, right, they right. still didn't taste overly alcoholic. But uh, Josh, I thought was pretty clever that. He labeled a couple, of, well, quite a few vintages were just called table wine, and that was an alcoholic designation. It just meant it was between 11 and 14, because people would focus on alcohol so much, you know, even then, and even more so now. And so they look at a label and say, oh, I don't like, I don't like wines that are over 14% alcohol. Goes, well, you haven't tasted it. How do you know that you don't like it? Oh, I just know. And so the table wine thing threw everybody off because they said, well, that these wines are pretty expensive if they're just ordinary table wine, but it was really an alcoholic designation that meant the same thing as 12.5 because at the time, well, still, you, you have a point and a half of leeway. So if you put 12.5 on it, it means it's between 11 and 14, which is exactly what table wine meant. But I thought that was a kind of a, a fun way of getting around the whole alcohol thing and where people were so focused on it. But anyway, so yeah, we've had some Vintages where, uh, you know, it was hard to keep the wines under 14%. Again, I think there certainly is a trend for trying to pick with a little bit lower sugars and stuff, but I, I still argue that you want ripeness, and it's harder to get ripeness in a really hot vintage because sugar's outpacing the flavors. But if you pick when there's no flavor, have you really gained anything? Yes, you're now you have a wine that's balanced without flavor. So... Is that better? I don't. I don't know. I still think you need to. You need to have flavor and ripeness. So, it's it's a little bit tricky. Even in a, like in a wet year, just the opposite thing is happening. You know, you could say, well, we we picked before the rain, but again, if you don't have flavor, I'd rather have some flavor that gets diluted by the rain than to never have had the flavor to begin with. So, you you have to to wait for that. And and sometimes you know you might actually have more alcohol by picking it before rain, but if you don't have flavor, what's what's the point? So I, I'm still a little bit old school in the sense that I do want to wait for that moment. Obviously, overripe is not good, but underripe isn't the solution. I, I mean, I even try to tell some of the up-and-coming guys that don't claim you pick early. You pick perfectly, right? You pick when it's ready for you. Don't call it early because then you're admitting you missed the mark, you know? So you don't want to say you pick late either. You, you pick when you think it's right, but those terms can be... Uh, used against you sort of you know so anyway yeah alcohol is a big focus these days as it as it should be you know nobody nobody wants to intentionally make wines that have more alcohol but i do sympathize with places that are already planted and they're getting warmer and warmer and warmer and you can't knock somebody for using some new technology even to help them make balanced wines 
unfortunately, I would say that if you have to do that every vintage, then you you should maybe think about a different variety or or something else. But to fix an aberrant vintage, um, I can't argue with somebody who wants to do that. I, I think it's a bit of a winemaker's job to make a wine that's balanced. And so just to pick it before sugars get high doesn't necessarily solve the problem because if you don't have the maturity of flavors and phenolics, and then um, that's, I don't think, any better than having a wine that is a bit more alcoholic, but it's got more flavor too. So it's just a bigger wine. Uh, it's not like there's a magic line at 14 where 13.9 would have been good and 14.1 is going to be bad. You know, it's a continuum. And sometimes if you've got a lot of other things going on in the wine, I mean, it's Infidel with that, it's a good example. And some of those alcohols were outrageous, but there's also lots of flavor and other things and, and acidity as well that made the wines balanced even at higher alcohol. So, but it's a challenge. The warmer it gets, I think it, it becomes a challenge. It's easier to get balance in a cool year, I think, as long as you do wait long enough to get flavor. In terms of drinkability of the different single vineyard pinots, when do you start to open the bottles? Well, you know, I think a little bit of time is always is going to help them. You know, we try to explain to people that it's not a straight line, the ageability of a wine. It's not like a 15-year-old bottle is much better than a 14-year-old bottle, but a one-year-old older wine is is better than a brand new wine in the earlier years. So I think short-term aging isn't talked about as much. You know, people feel like you either drink it right now or you have to let your grandkids have it, you know, and there's a lot in between there. So ideally, you know, a few years, it makes a lot of difference. And so I, I would like to, the window for me is anywhere from, you know, a couple years to 10 years is, is what's wrong with that. And I used to think people didn't age their wines long enough, and certainly they they can get better for our wines can get better for another ten years maybe, but the return on investment is is much less I think. And now I feel like I'd rather taste a wine while it's still on the uphill side than starting to taste it on the downhill side. You know, you invested all that time and hope and energy into it, and then just say, "Ah, oh, I should have had it last year." You know, I'd rather have it the year before you say that. You know. But there's a big, long plateau, too. You know, it's not like they're always getting better, nor do they just fall off a cliff, usually. I find that the Oregon winemakers have historically, over the last 50 years, been a little closer to some of the Burgundian producers, whereas some of the California producers maybe started off close to the Burgundian producers, but then there was a real vogue for kind of bigger, more California-centric fruit in Pinot in California. And so I feel like you kind of segued at the right time into the Oregon milieu because you kind of came out of that, that early heavily affected by Burgundy, California school. And then right when California was moving in the 90s to more that lusher style, you came up north where there's a lot of connection with Burgundy producers. Well, I think that the original connections were both uh, genuine and and real, but also there was a marketing aspect to it. I think that, you know, anyone that made Pinot Noir was obviously connected to Burgundy because that was its home and where the standard was made, you know. But I would argue that even in Burgundy, I think that there was a, a little shift in the style. So, it, you know, the, what's Burgundian is, is kind of a loose term, you know, like we can do anything and find somebody in Burgundy doing it, you know, you can find wines that are pasteurized and everything else. And so, you know, you can point to somebody doing it because that's where they do everything. And 
So I think that there was a whole industry kind of shift into the bigger, more modern style of Pinot Noir. And, and again, I don't want to blame anyone, but that's sort of the Parkerization. I mean, I like Robert Parker. He All he did was identify what he liked and told people about it. He didn't try to change anybody's style or anything. And so, but there was this, you know, and, and it's kind of an American thing that bigger is better, right? So more is always more, but sometimes more is less. <laughs> So, yeah, but I think that segue for me was, was good. And, and I understand that, that it wants to stay connected with Burgundy. I mean, I, I love it as a region and I love their wines. But I think we are fortunate that we have a little bit, it's easier for us to sort of mimic their style a bit. I think, I think California has a lot more fruit, very ripe, fruit-driven style. I think Burgundy, again, these are big generalizations on, and I'm, I'm not saying the whole state of California makes their wines that way or all Burgundy does either, but they're more in the earthier realm, you know, a little bit more backward and and rustic and earthy, uh, again, in, in a generality. And, and we have, we're kind of in between those two. But I also kind of laugh at the comparisons between us and Burgundy. We're always trying to find what's similar, but I think there's a lot more differences than there are similarities. Our soils are completely different. They've got limestone, you know, we haven't got any of it, really. There's a couple little dots on a geologic map that they have some on the coastline or something, but I don't really know of anybody that has limestone in their soil. Sedimentary soils, for sure, you can find seashells and stuff, but it's not the same kind of um, marl stone and stuff that they have in Burgundy. And we say, you know, we're at the same latitude. We're really, they're a little bit north of us. They have a very continental climate. We've got a big ocean right next to us. You know, there's there's a lot of differences. And so it's, you know, again, the vine density is not even close for the most part. You know, we're just pushing over half in our dense planting, with the exception of some of Druans, although I don't know that they still plant in that high density uh, fashion that they started with just because they wanted to try it out. You know, it's, it's, they had, I know in the early years, they had a lot of mildew pressure because there was, their plants were so close together and stuff. But for the most part, um, we feel more connected, I think, to Burgundy because we're a closer latitude and things than California maybe, but we're, we're still very different. And I try not to make comparisons to Burgundy as much as I was used to doing because I think we're making wines that are Oregonian and they're separate, not better or worse. They can't make Oregon wines any more than we can make Burgundy wines, you know. And it's true of California too. I think they have their own style. And, and certainly now the, the ones that are standing out are are not the stereotypical overripe and hot and one-dimensional. I think that the people have grown sophisticated in their palates as well, and they they recognize quality more than they did. And, you know, some of the coastal regions, the cooler regions are, are the ones that are getting more and more attention. So I think that we've all, we've all evolved together. Has it surprised you just how popular Pinot Noir has become over the course of your career? Yeah, I guess I never thought that even wine consumption would outdo beer consumption at any time, you know, but it does. I mean, to me, it's always been on the rise. Uh, so I don't feel like certainly there were certain events or times when it seemed like there was a little bit of a lift, you know, that everyone says, oh, sideways was what did it or whatever. But to me, it's always been a bit of a, a growth Thing that people, you know, recognize Pinot Noir for what it was. Because I've always, I've been lucky that I started there. Like I said, the first blind taste I ever did had a Latash in it. It's like, 
how do you how do you go back from that you know it's just that there's been a sweep of market popularity for Pinot Noir that would have been hard to predict when he first started in 78. Absolutely. You're right. Uh, 78, there was not that many people in the game. And the style that was favored, I think, were the ones that were the big, even then, it was bigger style, you know, Santa Cruz Mountain Vineyard, Hoffman Mountain Ranch, uh, you know, they had a lot of alcohol, a lot of color. And that was kind of hard to achieve with Pinot Noir. So they thought that was good. And I'm not saying those weren't good wines, but I mean, there was just a different, different understanding of the variety now, I think, that uh, is getting people excited. I mean, you know, there was a period where everything had to be bigger is better. And I've always appreciated Pinot Noir for its uh, femininity, if you will, or the ability to be feminine. And the epitome for me is is wines like the Dujac that had both power and yet they were silky smooth and had finesse, at least when they had a little time on them. And that to me is my goal all the time. And unfortunately, I think often power and weight is is preferred over that elegant style. And I hope that the pendulum for the whole industry goes back to appreciating that elegance that I think Pinot Noir does better than almost any other variety. You know, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove is how you describe great Pinot Noir. The way I like to describe it too, this is not my quote, but someone said that uh, great Cabernet-based wines will blow your socks off, but great Pinot Noir will slide them off gently. So I thought that was a good comparison, you know. I think now it's kind of undisputed, although I'm sure people would argue with me that it's it's the best food wine, I mean, in terms of matching with a variety of things than anything else. So, I mean, as food and wine have become more popular, obviously Pinot Noir is on more restaurant lists than it ever has been. And you know, it may not be the perfect match with every dish, but if you're at a table of eight and everybody's buying something different, what one wine will match all of that? And I can't think of anything more than Pinot Noir, you know. So, again, I, I have a little bit of a narrow focus, so, so my thoughts are a bit biased. Things have always been on the rise for Steve Dorner at Christum Vineyards in Oregon. Thank you very much for being here today. Oh, my pleasure. It's been fun. Steve Dorner of Christum Vineyards in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Editing on this episode was done by Justin Hellstrom. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. This episode was made possible by the Willamette Valley Wineries Association. That's the same association that organizes the annual Willamette, the Pinot Noir Auction, 
and Oregon Pinot Camp. For more information, please visit WillametteWines.com. That's Willamette with two L's, two E's, and two T's, Wines with an S, dot com. The interview that you heard with Steve Dorner was recorded several years ago, and the reason it was never released is that there was a technical problem with the recording that an audio professional had to correct. And I'm not an audio professional while hiring one to fix the issue was expensive enough to mean that this episode would be released for a loss monetarily, which is exactly why donations to this program are so important and why I can say that because some of you donated to the success of this program, this episode became a reality. Otherwise, it, it wouldn't have been viable. Thank you. If you'd like to see further releases like this occur, please consider donating funds to the program today. I've unfortunately found, and I don't want to blame anybody for it, but there seems to be kind of this international style almost where there's a lot of convergence. I think we're getting away from it now, but um, there was a time when, you know, everybody was trying to make the wine for the average person and there is no average person and you're never going to get all the consumers. So why not make something that's kind of unique? You know, I'm a little critical sometimes when I have a lineup of 12 wines from Oregon or something and you know, it's hard to know whose is whose. I mean, there may be some difference between the wines, but there's not a, a defined style so much that you can pick that wine out of a lineup every time. And well, I can't do it in my own wines even. So I'm not being critical of the tasters. I just mean it's, um, there just seems to be uh, this uniformity that is good, but it can be boring too, you know, and it's almost better to have something that is a little bit distinctive so that you can have a style that is, is your own, you know.